Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of November 23rd, 2021. Uh, here in the States, uh, unlike where Rocky's at, it's Thanksgiving week. So <laughs> kind of a convoluted week, really busy week for uh, a lot of people. But hopefully you can get to your comic shop to check out some DC books. Pretty solid week overall. Um, you know, as we head into this holiday season, I, I wonder due to shipping delays and supply chain and paper shortages, if we might see more disruption for some DC titles or if they've gotten it all, like everything is delayed as far as it's going to be delayed. But I have noticed that there have been some, some other delays with, uh, with books and, and whatnot. And I always know it's the holiday season when, when my wife has me help her get the Christmas decorations out of the attic. We started yesterday with, no, I was going to say 17, 14 totes we took down from the attic of Christmas decorations, but that didn't include any of the ornaments or the outside <laughs> decorations or any of the eight trees we have. I think we have eight Christmas trees. Wow. So anyway, uh, I, I tell you guys about this every year and you know, I'm thinking this year I might actually show you, we might do a, a special tour of the house once everything's up and you guys can see <laughs> looks like Christmas throws up and it's just everywhere, but, but we love it. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, we'll dive into the comics here uh, in a second. But first of uh, Rocky, let me get your thoughts on the week overall. Do you think it was a, a strong week for DC? Well, uh, you know, I, I think it was a. I was entertained. I was. I was. There's a more than one title. Well, let's put it this way. I actually, I actually got something out of Checkmate number six for a change from Bendis, which is nice. So it ended on the highest note that. Leviathan has ended on and we'll get into why. So I think that sort of set the tone. So Checkmate never depressed me all that much. So I was quite, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. And yeah, I, overall, I think that this week wasn't, um, wasn't, uh, it was, it's better than last week anyway. So it was a little, uh, it was yeah. an uptick from last week. Yeah, I agree. Last week was an uncharacteristically down week. I felt like everything was just sort of average to, to maybe slightly above average. This week's interesting. I feel like there's nothing that is a real stinker. I think most things are above average, but there wasn't that that one book that just blew me away. You know, like some weeks yeah. we have, you know, one or two books that are just like outstanding. So this had a couple pretty good ones. Like I agree with you on Checkmate, far and away the best of the bunch. Um, and Harley Quinn actually surprised me this week. So uh, we'll talk about that as well. But Let's kick it off with uh, probably one of the highlights. You know, I'm, I'm saying nothing blew me away. This may have been the closest to blowing me away. It's uh, it's Superman number seventy eight or Superman seventy eight number four. I think I do that every time. Um, so this again, it, it's the Christopher Reeves version of Superman. Uh, if there had been a third movie that was directed by Richard Donner, you know, it was rumored that it would have Brainiac in it. So. Robert Venditti, the writer, is imagining, hey, maybe this is the story that Richard Donner would have told. So the art is by Wilfredo Torres. Colors are by Jordi Belair. Letters are by Dave Lamphere of A Larger World. And, you know, we saw last issue that, or two issues ago, Superman gave himself up to Brainiac. And we saw last issue he, he was, uh, and again, this is the version of Brainiac that's sort of the collector, goes around collecting different um parts of doomed planets, whatever. So he, he took Kandor from Krypton. He's the one that has the bottled city of Kandor. He went to earth. He was drawn by the Kryptonian 
DNA of Superman. Hey, you're not supposed to be here on, on Earth. You know, you're the last of a dying race. I need to collect you. And so he threatened Earth. Superman, being who he is, gave himself up, allowed himself to be trapped. Now that he's not under the yellow sun of of Earth, he, he doesn't have his powers. He's trapped along with the other Kryptonians in the bottled city of Kandor. And so in this issue, we see him trying to become accustomed to that. And he seems to struggle even more so than his father does, which makes sense when you think about it. He was raised, you know, he wasn't raised on Krypton. He even talks about that, you know, when his father wants him to take over as sort of the political leader uh, of, of the Kryptonians that are left. And he's like, I wasn't raised to just give up, you know, my, I was raised in Kansas and I'm used to, you know, wide open spaces and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and what I, what I love about it, as well is the idea that Lex Luthor is inadvertently helping Superman escape. And why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because he's so ego driven and uh, just narcissistic that he doesn't want Brainiac to defeat Superman. He'll, he'll rescue Superman so that nobody else gets to defeat Superman because only Lex Luthor, you know, the greatest criminal mind, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so it's, it, I mean, that is a hundred percent the Gene Hackman characterization of, of Lex Luthor. So I think all of these characterizations really, really ring true. And, and Venditti does a, a fantastic job. You know, and I know this is his version of Superman and even uh, probably my favorite line, because <clears throat> even as Superman is, is trying to figure out a way and along with his father, due to some of the things Luthor's done, there's a possibility that Superman Kal-El can escape from the bottled city as opposed to uh, Jor-El, who's been searching for a way to escape for all this time and, and hasn't been able to find a way. Laura, his mom, Superman's mom, is like, we just like got you back. Is this safe? Like, you know, we don't want anything to happen to you. You know, I forbid you to, to take any risks. And then Kal-El, Superman, as we know, is, is all, especially the Christopher Reeve version, is always going to take the risk. And he changes out of the white robes that he, he was wearing to try to fit in with the rest of the Kryptonians. He's back in a Superman costume. And uh, it's it's by, by far and away the best line in the whole comic. As his mom is telling his dad, you know, you, you sent him away in a rocket. We never got to see him grow up. Now it's a miracle he's been returned to us. I won't see him put in harm's way. And then we get a, a fantastic full page, well, almost full page spread, uh, splash anyway of, of Superman there in his costume. And he says, harm's way is what I do. And I can just hear Christopher Reeve's voice in my head when, uh, when he says that. And it's just, it's fantastic. So as soon as I, as soon as I read that, the line was so good. I didn't even finish reading the story. I immediately had to like get a screen capture and I went and I posted it. It was Friday. I think it was Friday night, last Friday. I posted it on my Twitter feed with that line. Harm's way is what I do because, uh, Venditti just blew me away with that line. So uh, I thought it was fantastic. Again, this just rings so true. It feels completely like a continuation of Superman 1 and 2 from uh, from Richard Donner. And, man, the, o the only – and it's not even a complaint. The only thing I'll, I'll say about this that isn't a positive is I wish Christopher Reeve had – and Richard Donner had had a chance to do this. I wish I could see yeah. this story on the big screen because it, it really is fantastic. So uh, anyway, what did you think, Rocky? Did you enjoy yeah. it as much as I did? I did. This was my favorite of the issue, favorite issue so far. The This is issue four of six. This is my favorite so far. I 
this, I mean, just ranks so true. I just it would be great to see Marlon Brando again. And I'm just, it's so easy to picture this as a movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially with this fourth issue, I mean, especially with Lex Luthor, the greatest criminal terror terror of our <laughs> era, you know. Yeah. And uh, I love. There's a my my favorite line in the in in this comic was when uh, Jor-El said, "Alpha waves." Wow, that, that man is that's quite genius, you know. When he's uh, Jor-El compliments the intellect of Lex Luthor, and and uh, of course Superman says, "Please don't." Please don't tell him you said that <laughs> as he goes big enough. But no, it, this was a really, really w- well done story. Now, if the continuity side of me, I'm a little bit, maybe the wonk, maybe, uh, maybe I'm misremembering uh, Superman, but I thought, I don't know how jor Al and Laura could have survived Krypton because they weren't on Kandor. I don't, I mean, Brainiac must have rescued them after they, they rocketed the ship to Krypton. Uh, from Krypton to Earth, because I'm not sure how they ended up on Kandor, Jor-El and Laura, uh, in order to be in this bottle city. So I thought that that felt a little bit odd to me, but uh, it's easy for me to reconcile with my head canon. I can imagine after they rocketed, you know, Jor- uh, Kal-El, young Kal-El to Earth, they somehow found themselves, you know, they must have been on Kandor. I mean, we don't know. Maybe they, maybe they were living in Kandor. Apparently, that's where jor Kal-El lived with Jor-El and Laura on Earth, and maybe Brainiac must have just scooped up all of uh, the city of Kandor right after that ship was rocketed to Earth. But in any event, love the art, love the way this was, uh, you know, I mean, artistically, this is just, I mean, it's spot on. Uh, The, again, you know, Gene Hackman, I mean, it's so easy to picture Gene Hackman saying these words. Venditti just absolutely nails these characters. Uh, I actually, I even have some sympathy for, for 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 Brainiac, the villain in this issue, because it's like he's, you know, uh, it makes sense that he would, you know, some people on certain planets are so stupid, you know. I had to bottle City Candor because they were so dumb they let their they let their they let their planet ex- explode, and so I even have some sympathies with with Brainiac. He, he he's he's like a noble custodian, but of course he ultimately he's a little bit too hardcore. He's he's not a he's not a He's not benevolent. He's more malevolent if if you try to defy him or escape the Bottle City. But anyways, well done. Uh, continues to be the highlight. This is, uh, I like this better than Batman 89. Uh, this one captures the spirit of the movie that much. Uh, the spirit of Christopher Reeve and, and all the other actors and that era of the 70s so well. Yeah, I agree. As, as far as, I, it's not just this one when it comes to the, the continuity and maybe if I had Mark Wade's memory and had read every single Superman comic, I'd, I'd be able to like suss it out more. Cause I always thought based on the importance of Jor-El and the science council and what have you, that they would be in the capital city. And we know the capital city of Krypton, you know, it's not like here on earth where there's different nations. It's all, there's just one capital for the whole planet, one, one race. And the capital is Kandor. So it always seemed to me like that's the city that, Jorel should have been in, but maybe his lab was outside the city limits. Like I'm not, I'm not sure because again, when Candor, because this, in a way, this is, you know, ringing true to Candor's first appearance in the comics or whatever, because that's how Candor got saved. It was Brainiac that did it, but in the continuity, how it's always been, uh, Jorel and Lara weren't saved. They weren't in the city of the bottled city of Candor when it got saved. So, yeah, I'm not really sure. So maybe it, 
maybe this time the lab is within the city limits. Like I'm not, I'm not sure how that, that works, but anyway, let's move on. I guess it's not that important. Uh, let's move on to the next book we're going to talk about. It's the last tie-in for Catwoman uh, into Fear State. It's called Unafraid. It's written by Ram V. We have Nina Vakuva and Laura Braga and Geraldo Borges on art. Jordi Belair does the colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. And not only is this the final Fear State issue of Catwoman, it's also uh, Ram V's final final go around with uh with Catwoman and it's been a pretty successful run uh, overall but we, we can talk a little bit about the run overall but let's dive into the details of this particular issue first what did you think Rocky I, I thought I thought it ended good uh, one of the things that I like what what Ram V has has done and I think he did it uh, he did it he's done it to good effect with, with Catwoman is I I've never felt uh the last time I felt that Selena really had a home that she could settle in and have a and and really really have her own lifestyle and place in Gotham City was during Darwin Cook's run uh, mm. that I and I remember that run very fondly. Uh, Joelle Jones' run on Catwoman Catwoman was in another city, but it didn't quite feel right because it wasn't Gotham. What Ram V did here by giving by giving uh, you know Selena giving her a home in Alleytown giving her the the stray cats i mean her own gang like her own gang or i guess her own group of people it wasn't really a gang it's a group of people that she cares for calling them the stray cats making them taking all the these strays in including you know knockout cheshire uh killer croc clayface sort of like the 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 dredges of society but caring for them and because everybody is important in their own way and i love the the, the society essentially in Alleytown built around Catwoman and it gave he gave he's given Catwoman her own agency that has really worked well in this series in a way that transcends some of my criticisms and our criticisms of Fear State in terms of how it maybe dragged on a little bit was a little disappointing. I really like here this is actually my most satisfying ending to Fear State because I like I like how Catwoman gets one up on Riddler. Riddler and the Penguin were, were setting Selina up to fail. Uh, Riddler, of course, it was sort of like an, a, not a very well-kept secret that Riddler was going to betray Selina. But Selina was, to great effect, ahead of Riddler because if it's what Ram V has told stories in previous issues of Catwoman where he's done flashbacks where Catwoman has... She's learned the con artist game from some of the best con artists in the world. <laughs> so, while Bruce Wayne was young and going and training his body to be a great fighter and, and, and a great intellect, Selena Kyle was doing the same thing, but more on the darker side of the criminal element. And so Selena saw the betrayal that Riddler inflicted upon her and Alleytown. She saw it coming a mile away and she prepared for it to great effect. Uh, I love how... All the moving parts weave in very well here. I love how Ghostmaker shows up to help Catwoman at the end take on uh, the White Witch, and and I love you know it ties it ties in everything neatly. And because one of the one of the potential criticisms of DC is there, there's multiple titles here from Nightwing to Catwoman to Harley Quinn that all deal with the same events of Fear State, but they're all being told from. Well, obviously different writers. And so there's not perfect synchronicity and you can't expect that. But that's one, that's a potential criticism. But as a compliment here to Ram V, uh, and the art here is pretty good too. I actually like the way this felt almost self-contained for Catwoman. And I, I like I like the ending with, with Harley and Ivy and 
all these players, I think Ram Veed has done a better job here handling all these players at the end of Fear State than, than Tinian pulled off in, in Batman. And that's a, that's a high compliment. So overall, I'm, this is definitely something where I love Selena's getting one up on the Riddler. Uh, I really enjoyed this. And what a great way to cap off Ram V's run on, on the title. There is, uh, if there's one, I'm not sure if this is his last title or not. If there's one criticism I have is we didn't really learn a lot about the White Witch, uh, which was an odd name for that character. She's got kind of that honeycomb face. The Ghostmaker shows up and helps Selina fight the White Witch, and the White Witch has multiple copies of herself. We, we, we never really learned a lot about what White Witch's powers were. That's going to probably come in future issues. I know that from future solicits, but in any event... Uh, that's probably a criticism. I'm not sure if this is Ram V's last issue on the title or not. But uh, in any event, other than that minor nitpick, I was generally happy with this finale for Catwoman's first date. Yeah, I was pretty happy too. It's interesting that both of the finales we get this week in Fear State, both the Harley Quinn and the Catwoman final parts in Fear State, to me, are the best two endings because both writers, in this case Ram V and the case of Harley Quinn, uh, Stephanie Phillips, they do an incredible job of sort of retaking the agency for their characters. And even though it ties in to Fear State and it certainly gives an end to the the thread, the plot thread that's been going, that and it and it uh, it wraps up in a satisfactory way. It feels like it pays more service to their characters, in this case Catwoman, than it does give service to to Fear State. And that's what a good tie-in should do. Like the whole point of a tie-in the re, re, or crossover, whatever you want to call it, they originally did was it was it was a way to get readers who weren't ordinarily picking up that title to pick it up, right? So if you're not ordinarily reading Catwoman, but you're reading Batman and you want the whole Fear State story, you go ahead and pick up Catwoman. But the point is that that Catwoman still has to have the flavor of the regular Catwoman title when it's not crossing over. That way the reader knows what to expect and, and can make the decision Hey, I like the way Ram V writes Catwoman. I'm going to stay on this title. <laughs> Obviously, not going to work for you this time because this is his final issue. Uh, Tinny Howard is is coming on, and she's a fantastic writer in her own right. So, hopefully, yeah. that'll work out. But, but yeah, I thought this was great. I thought it wrapped up well. It, it was very true to the characterization and sort of the the agency and intelligence and the very authentic voice that Ram V gave Selena throughout his run. So, I really appreciated that. Um, I am a little disappointed like you are that we didn't get the white, which is, you know, more of her story. Uh, I know that Ram V, he didn't want to leave Catwoman, but it's another one of those situations where the, you got to when you're a writer, you got to make hay while you can. Right. So he's got some creator owned stuff. He's got other titles at, at, um, at, uh, DC that he's writing. I think he might even be working on a Marvel title. So he's, you don't want to bite off more than you can chew where all the work suffers. And so I never will blame a writer for dialing back. You know, you, you only have one reputation. You only have one name. And you, if you take on too much stuff and, and all the work suffers, and then, you, you know, you get a reputation for, for doing sloppy work or work that feels rushed, that's worse, yeah. you know? So, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've loved Ram V. I think he's written the, the most authentic and, realistic and my favorite version of uh of catwoman like i agree with you rocky since darwin cook and i even like ram v's version a little more than than darwin and i know that's sacrilege to some people but 
you know, Dar Darwin's was a sort of a Catwoman for a different era. You know, that it's sort of apples and oranges when when we're comparing. Um, but yeah, it, she's it's been a fantastic run. And my only disappointment is that he didn't. I know he has more Catwoman stories to tell, and I wish he had the time to tell them. Um, but I'm excited for the other stuff that he has to do. And obviously, like I said, it was a tough choice. He said he didn't want to leave the title, but you know, something had to give. So I, I imagine he must've spoke to Tinny about what his plans were and she must be picking up some of those threads and we'll give it, give her own spin on that. So yeah, yeah again, it's a minor nitpick. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed, but you know, we can't expect writers to stay on titles forever. We know that the days of, you know, like a Peter David run on the Hulk, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that just doesn't, that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, yeah, I hear you. Um, the other thing that I'll say about, about this book, and again, it's not, it's not a criticism of, of any of the artists. Uh, it's unfortunate that there were three different artists on this book, because I don't think, um, I don't think in terms of, of rendering or, or layouts or anything that anybody doesn't do a really good job. In fact, I think, everybody does a, a great job, especially of, of the visual storytelling. The problem I have with it isn't even that the styles that they have are so disparate that it, it pulls me out of the story. But what, the, what is very different about these three artists is the way they tell a story visually, like their camera angles and, and just the sort of the tone of their art does feel very different. And so there are times where that kind of pulls me out of the story. If, if you look at, sort of the, the panel layouts and the page layouts in the first part of the book, like the, the energy that the art has. And then you look toward the middle of the book, say the, the page where a Ghostmaker's car is, is kind of flying through the air. It's very obvious that they're approaching it from a sort of a different visual perspective, uh, which you would expect. It's a different artist and no two artists draw exactly the same. Even if an artist tries to copy another artist, it's not the same. And then you go a little bit further into the book and you get those pages where everything has kind of a greenish hue and it's much more gritty. That is again, a different, a different feel. Um, at least that one is, is more of a flashback. So it's not as, it's not as jarring. Um, so I don't think that any of the artists do a bad job. It's just unfortunate that they had probably for time constraint reasons to get this out on time. They probably, you know, some of the artists needed some help. Maybe the script came in late. I, I don't know what the details are. Um, but it's just when you when you read a you know one artist into the next into the next, it feels a little bit disjointed, uh, and it, it it hurts the pacing a little bit. But again, it's it's a minor complaint. I think overall, it's a, it's a really really good issue. And uh, like Rocky and I both said, it's it's uh, it's one of the better endings for Fear State, and it does make me want to read that Fear State Omega, which is another part of the thing you want to cross over to do, make you want to read the main series. I, I do want to see how everything gets tied up. Maybe we might even get uh, a wrap up of some white witch stuff there. I like, I don't know, probably not, but it's possible. Uh, anyway, on to the next book. It's uh, DC versus vampires issue. Number two, it's called blood and sand. It's written by James Tynan and Matthew Rosenberg. The art and the colors are by Otto Schmidt. Letters are by Tom, uh, Tom Napolitano. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about the art first. I, and I, I'm just going to echo what I said when we cover issue one, I expect cleaner art from Otto Schmidt, but that being said, I think he purposefully is giving us art. That's a little, a little more sketchy, a little more sort of gritty and visceral because this is a, a horror story. It is a story about, um, 
this tenuous piece that has existed in the DC universe between vampires and everybody else it's it lasted for centuries is about to come to an end. Um, and it's, it's a really fun story. And it's clear to me that Tynan and Rosenberg are having a lot of fun. Um, and I, I won't, I, I don't even quite know. It's not something that I dislike about the title, but I'm, su I'm such a fan of Hal Jordan having him be the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's, it's fun because we're seeing a different side of, of Hal Jordan. Um, and he's, and he's getting a lot of, uh, screen time, obviously in the pages of this book. Um, but I don't know. Is it, I mean, he's supposed to have like this fantastic willpower and I just, I want to believe that he would have been able to fight off the influence of the vampires a little bit, but I don't know. The story, story's not over. So, you know, maybe, maybe he'll overcome it. I, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. I, I, again, I have, I have mixed feelings about the fact that he's sort of the, the main superheroic bad guy. Uh, but there's a lot to like here. The, the whole entire scene of, of Batman getting his bat family together, them like Bruce, why are you calling us here during the day? You know, with the curtains of, this is not, this is not what we do. And then making joke jokes about it. And then they all, they all are served tea by Alfred and in the most Batman of all Batman things, you know, right, stealing a page right out of the whole brother eye thing, they all drink tea, not realizing that Batman <laughs> had Alfred make the tea with holy water because he didn't, even <laughs> though they're there in the sunlight, he didn't necessarily trust them all. So he knew if any of them had act, were actually vampires, that uh, they would they would burst into flame, um, even <laughs> to the point where, at first, when they they realize. You know, they're like, hey, Batman, why, why don't you seem worried about any of us? And then they all realize they're drinking tea and Damien dumps his out in the plant next to him. And then, oh, I spilled my tea. Can I get some more? Once he finds out, it's just the holy water. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's some there's some really humorous moments like that uh, that I would expect from Tynan and Rosenberg. They're both they're both really, really good writers when it comes to balancing uh, things like horror and and, uh, and humor and whatnot. So yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this e even maybe more than, than I thought I would. Cause when I first heard about it, I'm like, Oh, here we go. DC and vampires. Like this hasn't been done before. You know, like w when you mash up things like the whole Marvel zombie thing, you know, when you're mashing up uh, sort of classic monsters with superheroes, it can get kind of old or, mm -hmm. or tropey. Uh, but this has been, this has been pretty fun. Um, and yeah, I was always a, a big, you know, being a big Hal Jordan fan, I, I always loved when uh, Barry and Hal would get together. So that scene where uh, where Hal takes him out is pretty brutal as well. It, but again, it make, makes perfect sense, right? Like Hal saying, you're always my friend. I would have loved to have turned you, but based on your metabolism, if we do, you would like wipe out the whole human race in a matter of days because you would need so much blood to survive. You would just go and kill everybody uh, and then nobody would have any humans to drink from. It's a reminder that, uh, you know, the, as a concept, vampires, they can't ever completely dominate. Right. Cause then they won't have any food. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a fun issue. It's a fun series. Um, but yeah, the only thing is that those mixed feelings I have about, uh, about Hal Jordan, but it's, it's a minor nit, nitpick overall. I'm really enjoying it. And I thought this issue was, uh, was even better than the first one. Yeah, uh, twelve issues. It's gonna run, so we're uh, we're just getting started here. What did you think, Rocky? 
Yeah, I it's it's obvious to me. I'm pretty sure James Tiny and Matthew Rosenberg, the writers here, I think they had a lot of fun uh, scripting this because I I have a lot of fun just imagining if I was a vampire and I needed to take out all the superheroes and supervillains on the planet, where would I start? And I, I love the conversation is in the Bat family there when they're in that they're in the sunroom uh, with all the sunlight and drinking the holy water, and at some point they they, they got to. They got to hold a holy cross and <laughs> Batman showing is going to show them like all the different type of weapons that they, they can use. And Damien's all happy because he finally gets to actually kill people <laughs> because they're because yeah. you, you can you get to kill vampires. That's cool. So they're Damien's already all happy. dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're yeah. already dead. So Damien's happy. But I like the fact that they're asking themselves, well, how, what, what would you do? Well, you'd take out the magic users first and you'd probably take out the super villains because they're nobody's going to notice the villains are missing anyway because they're usually in hiding to begin with. And. You know, with with all the, you know, I like the uh, Rosenberg and Tanian did a good job scripting the dialogue as the Bat family is in that sunroom just talking about strategy and, you know, you know, where do we start? What do we do? Thought it was very well done. Uh, Hal Jordan. Uh, I I love you know he's such uh, he's such you mentioned before about how you you have mixed feelings about Hal Jordan being the vampire but that's also why he's the perfect he's the perfect choice almost for the betrayer of the Justice League because he has all that willpower and and I'm sure even Batman might think well you know Hal Jordan's got the strongest willpower of all he's probably the least likely candidate to uh, fall under a, a vampire's uh, you know you know magical or powerful uh, deceptions or control but in any event well done uh again the dialogue here really makes it it scripted very well uh the issues it's obvious here that there's a lot of gravitas uh there's there's a lot at stake batman did 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 not reveal one particular thing to the bat family he didn't tell them that he had a vial of lex luther's blood that lex luther gave um gave um uh bennett Andrew Bennett, right uh, after before he died. So Batman is keeping some information close to his chest. We'll see how that plays out. This is only issue two, and this is only going to get better, uh, I think. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm so glad it's in an alternate universe because I mean I'm enjoying the uh, uh, I'm enjoying you know I like seeing some of the darkness and to be able to kill off some DC characters, have a little fun where there's actually these these uh, there's actually stakes in this story. We you know the good guys are you know they're, they're Guess what? They're not going to be resurrected. At least I hope not. Let, let them stay dead. Let them let let Rosenberg and uh, Tinian have some fun here, and they certainly seem to be doing it so far. Yeah, that that trend sort of started with the DC's title from Tom Taylor, where anybody could be killed at any moment, and you didn't didn't know. And Taylor's continuing that in his in his Dark Ages uh, over at Marvel, yeah. where he killed off Johnny Storm in the last issue, yeah. which was shocking. Yeah, well, he did um, that in Injustice too. He killed off a number of people. Uh, yeah, that's Justice. true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So, kind of his tra- trademark. Nobody's safe. Not that this is a Tom Taylor title, <laughs> but it has that it sort of has that flavor a little bit. So, uh, I, I think if if DC doesn't have the success that it has, we may not have this DC versus vampires. So, yeah, it's all it's all tied in. Uh, well, speaking of dark comics, we have the end of a a series that we've been really enjoying. Uh, it's Batman Reptilian number six from writer Garth Ennis, art, colors, and the main cover by Liam Sharp and Rob Steen handles the letters. So this this wrapped it up quite nicely, I thought. What did you think, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I'm just bringing it up here. Um... Yeah, while you're doing that, I'll, I will also mention that the title of the final is Death and Taxes, which 
I thought was very appropriate because it kind of tells you that this ending was sort of inevitable. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. You, you can't avoid it. And, uh, you know, j just a, a continuing compliment on this series. I just love uh, Garth Ennis's interpretation of Batman here is just spot on. Batman is just is just ruthless here. The last issue ended with Batman actually jumping right into the mouth of this creature. And this this entire issue is just action packed. And the entire issue is just Batman jumping into this creature, this creature, which is sort of an offspring of Killer Croc, just sort of flies off. Batman, while within the stomach of this creature, uh, controls the Batmobile <laughs> that has Volkov in it, uh, one of his informants, Volkov, in the Batmobile. And the Batmobile is getting commands from Batman, who's trying to give it commands from within the stomach of this creature. And the Batmobile flies under the creature, explodes, but not before shooting Volkov into the sky. The creature goes down. Batman rips himself out of the this creature's stomach. <laughs> there's some great argument by Liam Sharp, especially there's my favorite uh, pages where Volkov is 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 ejected from the Batmobile and he's just screaming as he's flying through the air. It's just hilarious. It's a great scene. I mean, Liam Sharp does such a good job here, and this this creature is basically uh, it's a, it's not it's not totally dead, but Batman literally cuts himself out of the stomach of this creature. And, uh, and just in a very grim way, I mean, he's defeated the creature. He's calling in the military to pick the creature up and also to pick up Killer Croc. And, of, uh, in, in a scene, in a scene that really defines, I think, Garth Ennis's Batman, Volkov is very frustrated with Batman and he tells you know, he's telling Batman off, you know, you bastard, I'm tired of being your puppet and being used. But unfortunately, Volkov is marked by the creature and Batman sort of sits idly back. And <laughs> and the best line, it says, uh, remember what I told you back at the start, Volkov, the Batman ne never kills, but things have a way of happening anyway, as he, as he watches the creature literally eat Volkov. So this is not a Batman who will do whatever it takes to save the bad guy. I mean, he's literally watching his, his this criminal this criminal be eaten, and he's doing nothing to prevent it. So this is not your you know this isn't your typical DC universe mainstream Batman by any stretch. This is definitely a hardcore Batman, and um, yeah, and you know he's just he's cynical, he's sarcastic, and he's brutal. And he even says to Killer Croc at the end, he says, you know, look, I mean, you're gonna go. Uh, you've had a pretty good run, you know. You've had a pretty good run, run, Whalen. But you know, now, now you're going to pay your dues. And and he basically he doesn't care that the government might even military might even experiment on Killer Croc because they gotta, you know, because you don't know what Killer Croc's going to turn into. If this creature can come from Killer Croc, what else can come from Killer Croc? Because nobody knows anything about Killer Croc, and and Batman doesn't seem to have a care in the world. If if they're going to experiment on you, that's the price that you pay, Whalen. Too bad, so sad. Crimea River. I don't care. I mean, this is hardcore Batman. I loved it. Art was fantastic. This is uh, again. This is not. This is not your typical Batman, and this might not be a Batman that everybody likes. But I really like this. This is this is almost like Frank Miller Batman, but raised up a couple levels beyond even that. This is absolutely not the mainstream DC universe Batman. That's why I find it so refreshing. This is just a kick-ass Batman who's not afraid to watch criminals die. He just won't actually do the killing, but he might set things in motion that result in their death, but he's not actually the one pulling the trigger, so to speak. But well done. I, I you know, I enjoyed it.
What do you think? Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Uh, I don't, I don't have a lot to add to to what you said about this last issue in particular. You, 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 you picked all the same favorites I did. I love that scene of Volkov, yeah, getting shot up into the air, and uh, and when Batman tells Killer Croc, yeah, you, you've, you've played the game. Now you're going to pay the price, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm, you're going off with the creature, and what happens to you happens to you. So I, I thought that was fantastic. Um, one thing I do wonder about, I can't help but wonder. So the, the art is absolutely fantastic with, uh, with Liam Sharp. He, you know, you know, he talks about how, how much he loves Arkham Asylum, that Dave McKean art that, uh, that is classic for, in that Grant Morrison story. Uh, I, but I, I can't help but wonder what sort of different feel this might have had uh, if Steve Dillon, who was originally intended, intending to do it with, uh, with Garth Ennis had been able to do it, but, uh, you know, unfortunately yeah. he, he passed away far too young. Um, cause I think it would have had a completely different feel. It, it probably would have felt in my mind, a little more street kind of hard, hardcore. Um, cause I think Lee, Liam's art and while this still is a very dark Batman, Liam's art is a little more sort of fantastical in a way. It, it gives it a little more of a supernatural feel. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, I think Steve Dillon, you know, I, I think back to like his work on Punisher Max and whatnot would have maybe felt a little more like that. So, uh, but either way, I, you know, I, I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, and I particularly like the fact that we get Batman reptilian original pitch, uh, this pitch that Garth gave to Marie Javins, the, the editor in chief at, at DC. So you get, um, an idea of, of that more hardcore Batman and, and it's a three page document and it's not exactly how the story ends up going because, you know, things end up changing organically. And, and obviously when in his first pitch, this, he didn't know who the artist was going to be and whatnot, but I appreciate that it, that it's in there because it does, it does give context. Um, and it proves what a fantastic writer in is because even though things change between what the pitch was and what the final story is that we got, one thing that he nails and Rocky talked about it is this is a much more hardcore Batman. You know, this is a, a Batman who doesn't pull any punches and uh, yeah, he doesn't outright kill anybody, but he doesn't necessarily go out of his way to save somebody who's a villain who's put himself in, in harm's way. So yeah, I think overall this is a, a really good series and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it sells really well as a collected edition for, for years to come. So, yeah. uh, all right. Up next is checkmate issue number six from writer, Brian, Michael Bendis, Alex Malieve does the art Lee Luffridge on colors, Josh Reed on letters. Rocky and I both mentioned this being the, the best of, uh, of the checkmate series. This is issue six of six. It ends the story now, um, sort of tongue in cheek. I could say, well, this is the best issue cause it's finally over. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there is some truth to that, but at the same time, no, I, I, there's a part of me that feels like, and I, I totally expected this, that everything wouldn't necessarily be tied up. You know, there are still questions to be answered and that sort of suits a, not only a, a checkmate series, but also that's a Bendis, right? He always leaves some, some questions unanswered, maybe so he can come back to it or, or whatnot. Um, I f- definitely feel like this series is one that kind of suffered because of the pandemic it came out later than it should have 
it doesn't line up continuity wise with other things that are going on with Superman and whatnot. And I, I think that hurts the series overall, but this is much cleaner. And I think one of the other things that, that helps this issue flow really well, so many of the issues that Bendis did in the series, we didn't get linear storytelling. It jumped around. And I, I think that, hurt the pacing yeah. of the issues and the story overall very we don't, much don't get so. that here yeah yeah we don't get that here it, yeah. this is a, a straightforward narrative the only time jump we get is at the end uh after the the main part of the story is is over we we jump forward a week just to see a little bit of, of an epilogue scene between uh lois and superman so that's not you know jumping back and forth from different timelines which I, I, I sort of understand why Bendis did it in the regular series uh, and even in the lead up and, and the other Leviathan events, because it it's a storytelling structure that can allow you to, you know, move forward and tell some exciting plot points and then fill in the context at that moment when you need the context. But again, I, I think because this, the story ended up being a little bit more of we're going to tell you rather than show you and that sort of storytelling structure has to be done that way, that it can kind of hurt overall the pacing and the impact of, of what you're seeing because you, you're already, the people have already lived through it and they're just telling you about their experience rather than if you see them experience it, it can have more impact. You can see their uh, reaction in real time. So uh, I love that this issue was, was straightforward. Um, there was a little bit of, of wait, why Mark Shaw, all along through this entire thing because he's never been the biggest character um and so i always question why bendis chose him and then in the end here he's sort of displaced by talia al ghul because she's much more formidable than him and it it always should have been him and not her uh but at least that sort of makes more sense now uh but there is a little part of the dc fan in me that loves like more b and c and d list characters that's like oh man like you you told this whole story with Mark Shaw, but at the end, in order to make it make sense, you got to kill Mark Shaw. Not that he couldn't come back in some way, you know, he's a comic book character, but in a way it feels a little bit like, you know, wasting a character that I, that I always enjoyed. I always loved Mark Shaw's Manhunter. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's no great loss because it's not like he could carry his own series or, uh, or anything like that. But overall, I, I like the way that Bendis wrapped this up. It, it made sense. Um, I just feel like if, if the tone and the, the storytelling structure that we got in this issue had been throughout the series I, I and throughout this, his whole Checkmate and Leviathan storyline uh, where he was showing us and we're getting to see the characters go through it, that it would have it would have come across better than the whole telling rather than showing. Um, but yeah, I, th <coughs> I thought this was solid and it certainly left things open for, for more of, of Leviathan in the future. Leviathan's back in the hands of Talia al Ghul, which makes sense. Um, so yeah, overall, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty solid. I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see if this version of checkmate is the one that continues. Um, and yeah, the reveal of, uh, of who Mr. King was made sense also, and was also sort of cool. Um, but I'll let Rocky talk about that more if he wants to, to say who, who it is. It's a character that I, I'm not really that familiar with, uh, yeah. but, it, but it was interesting. It wasn't somebody that I expected it to be. So uh, anyway, what'd you think Rocky? Well, 
I like this issue more for the revelations than anything else. I actually, I mean, uh, in a in a twisted kind of way, you, you hit the nail on the head, and I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you articulated it that way because I wouldn't I wouldn't have, but you nailed it when you said that previous issues with with when, when Bendis was jumping from different timelines and and different periods of time, it felt very convoluted and it was difficult to follow and it it didn't flow very well. This issue really works because everything is linear and it really substantially helps the narrative immensely. I also want to give a compliment to uh, uh, artist Alex Maleev. I've been, I have been hard on Alex Maleev because I always, I've said in the past, he's not really one for action sequences, but these are, this is, this is Alex Maleev's best action sequences that he's done for all of his Checkmate series. All of the individual issues were Leviathan with Leviathan and then through this series. This was, I think, his best work so far. And I, I, I actually could see some of the battle sequences play out, uh, Better than I normally can when Alex Maleev draws him because he he's normally known for his static talking heads uh, with 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 Bendis, but it works well here. A couple of things that are interesting now, Mister King is revealed to be Commandy. He's from the future, so at, at the end of this, Mark Shaw is basically defeated. He's he's killed off because he's he's weak and pathetic. Talia takes over Leviathan. Talia Leviathan was always Talia's anyway. But Talia at one point teamed up with Mark Shaw. He was taking it over. But the entire, all of a sudden, all of Leviathan, the entire organization, the majority think that that Mark Shaw is weak and pathetic, which I find ironic because from the first time we met Mark Shaw, I, I was always joking, like along with so many people, who's Mark Shaw? Mark Shaw? Who? Mark Shaw? Like he he's, he was a joke from the beginning, and here we get to the end, and he is in fact not only is he in fact a joke, but he's killed off like the joke that he is, and all of Leviathan. Uh, decide to follow Talia because Talia's kick-ass. They fail to overcome, they fail to take over the Heroes Network, which is what they were, the Heroes Network consisted of all the sort of the computer and the controlling of, of the Justice League satellite, the, the, the Fortress of Solitude and the Batcave and all the, all those little secret headquarters that the Heroes have, the Heroes Network. Leviathan failed to overcome and, and take over all that. Uh, but we, we got the snowman's ticket. We now know that Lois Lane has a brother, Leonardo Lane. That's one of the things that's dangling at the end of this series. Uh, we, we, we don't know. Uh, at the end of this series, Lois Lane tells Superman that she's supposed to meet her brother and that he's going to tell her, he's going to fill her in on all the, all the information that she needs to know, presumably about his past and about, you know, how she never knew of his existence, et cetera, et cetera, which is frankly, I mean, I'm really interested in that. I wish we would have got, you know, I'm I'm not really happy with how it played out the revelation of Leonardo Lane, but I'm looking forward to to learn more about more about that. Um, one of the I'm a, a potential criticism of how this structure is now structured for the DC universe. I find now that see now Checkmate it, at the end here, Checkmate has agreed that they're not going to affiliate with any government. They're going to take Leviathan on head on. Well, I just want to make the observation here that Checkmate now, according to Amanda Waller, is going to be fighting fighting Leviathan under the auspices of the Justice League. Well, if Checkmate is the is the intelligence agency answer to Leviathan, well, what are the governments what is what does the United Nations think of that? I mean, a lot of people are making are criticizing John Ken for being very proactive in geopolitical affairs and violating the sovereignty of nations by by, you know, maybe invading the island of Gomorrah. And, you know, you, you got to respect the, the, the sovereignty of nations. Well, isn't the Justice League by, uh, by 
by controlling Checkmate now. What about the world governments? I mean, Leviathan basically took out all the best intelligence agencies from all the governments, and now Checkmate is operating outside and independently of all the governments. So in, in a very real way, isn't the Justice League now engaging in worldwide politics? Isn't that something they want to avoid? I mean, it just seems it seems like they're 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 getting in on dangerous territory here, which might make that's maybe that's not a criticism. Maybe that's going to create more drama for future stories because of who controls Checkmate, the Justice League. Well, who controls the Justice League? Batman, Superman. Isn't that what they wanted to avoid in the first place? King Superman making decisions for the rest of the Earth. Uh, Anyway, so it's just something to ponder. Amanda Waller showing up at the end. I I thought you were going to make some comment about that, Chase. But uh, she very clearly, uh, she seems to know about Commandy. If Commandy's come back from the 10,000 years in the future to prevent some, the great disaster from happening, the great disaster, which in command in Commandy history, that happens 10,000 years in the future. We know from Bendis' Justice, we know from Bendis' Legion of Superheroes that the Earth is destroyed in the 31st century and is completely re- reconstructed. So we, we know that the Earth is doomed anyway. So I'm not sure... What Commandy is hoping to prevent, because it's unless Bendis wants to change the Legion of Superheroes history that he wrote in this new omniverse, I I, I just I don't know why Commandy's back. I find it's a really odd thing to do. I, I I think it's I think this is just done for shock value. It's a very odd twist, but I'm willing to give it a shot to see what what's going to come out of it. But it it really has all the taste to me with of just. You know, just putting out an idea with with no direction as to where it's actually going. Although we do have Justice League versus Legion of Superheroes, which is a miniseries that's coming up, advertised. It's going to be debuting in January, so we might get something out of that. But in any event, uh, I love, I I love all these questions that that Bendis left us with here. He's planted some seeds that are interesting, and so I'll give him credit for that. Yeah, it's a good point, and about checkmate being under the auspices of, of the justice league. And it, it brings up a point that I, I don't know that I ever mentioned it as far as Amanda Waller showing up here again, it, it, that that's something that doesn't dovetail with what, what else is going on in the timeline right now of, of the DC universe. So again, that's one of those continuity things. Cause she's, she's sort of on her way out Amanda Waller, you know, she's in hiding in the pages of, of suicide squad. So yeah. I'm sort of just pushing that off here. And that's why I didn't mention it, but here's the thing. I, I sort of like the idea of there being uh, the Justice League having their own intelligence gathering organization. I I trust the Justice League more than I trust the intelligence agencies of the world. So I think that that's okay. But I get your point. Uh, you know, it is a little bit Batman brother eye kind of thing. Um, but I like that idea. But but here's my here's the thing I was going to say that I don't think I've ever mentioned. In my mind, when Bendis started going down this path. Of, of telling the, the Leviathan story and then these these individuals came together. This is a much different checkmate than we've ever had before. Like checkmate before was a government agency, you know, a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, um, one of those black hat organizations that one hand maybe doesn't know what the other hand is doing. They could even be running at counter uh, goals to each other, very much like a suicide squad, the ends justify the means, you know, that sort of political thing. And so I don't know that when Ben started telling the story and he started gathering together all, you know, Lois Lane and, um, and the Kate Spencer Manhunter and Commandy and Question and Green Arrow that he ever should have called it Checkmate because then you're in – other than Director Bones, who was the head of Checkmate, 
you're you're inherently tying it to what's come before. But this is this checkmate is not that. It's not the the government agency that you may or may not be able to trust. That's Suicide Squad. You know, that's Task Force Z now. That that's you know all these other clandestine organizations that Ben has sort of cleaned up. So yeah. why? You know, he should have called in my mind, he should have called it something else. And then it would have made even more sense to spin it off as the intelligence gathering organization for um, for the Justice League. I, like in my mind, if I compare it to something over at Marvel, like the Illuminati, right, where they don't get together all the time, but they are there uh, and they're some of the smartest people in the Marvel Universe. And they're there for the really big threats and for warning people when when things come along. So. I kind of sort of feel like maybe they should should have gone in that other direction rather than calling it checkmate because then it it does inherently tie it to that political organization that checkmate was. Um, but as far as like the United Nations and everyone else is concerned, I don't think like the previous checkmate was it was public knowledge even if most people didn't take the time to think about it. I think this this version of checkmate from everything we've read and seen and you know I'd have to go back and reread this which I'm not going to do. I didn't enjoy it that much, um, but I think it's it's still a secret, right? So you know, the United United Nations and the other governments of the world wouldn't necessarily know that the Justice League has this you know secret intelligence gathering organization. So so you're right, Bendis has give, planted the seeds for something really interesting here. Um, and if he does continue to be the one to tell the story, I hope he tells it in the linear fashion that he did in this issue because this issue was pretty damn solid. And if this had been how the whole story was structured, I would have been a fan of it even. And I'm not even a big fan of the whole political machination, secret intelligence side of, of DC. That's how good this was. And it, in, in my mind, it kind of bugs me because it's like, man, the potential was so great. I don't know. Maybe it, this might've been what, you know, what I was talking about with Ram V earlier where Bendis just had so many things going on. Uh, maybe was biting a, a, off a little more than he could chew. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Task Force Z, speaking of which, uh, we're up to the second issue. This is from writer Matthew Rosenberg, Eddie Barrows on pencils, Eber Ferreira on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors. Uh, I know you weren't a big fan of the first issue, Rocky. Did it get any better for you with the second one here? I'm happy to report that it did. I actually, uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I, let's see here. Uh, yeah, I mean... I, I thought I, I did. It was the first issue. I, I was a little disappointed. I thought this is just sort of like another alternative take on the Suicide Squad. And, and it, it it's still what it is. But there was something about Matthew Rosenberg's uh, writing here that uh, I got I got to give him credit. I, I really enjoyed it. And Eddie Burrow's art uh, was was really good. It's clear one of the uh, one of the things that we should identify right now that that is at play in Task Force Z but that is also in play in the issues of Robin with the Lazarus pits and Lazarus Island. And is also in play in the issues of suicide squad with the Lazarus, uh, with Lazarus resin and everything else. The, the Lazarus pits are having a, a greater prevalence in the DC universe right now. And cause we've got Lazarus pits, Lazarus Revan, we got Lazarus pills in this particular issue, uh, Lazarus liquid. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are happening right now, all flowing from the use of, uh, the Lazarus pits, quite frankly. 
this and, issue, and we have vampires. It's never been harder to actually die in the DC universe than it, it is right now. Apparently, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Death really is. You know, it's kind of funny because I mean, I I think I made the the comment before in one of our past reviews that you know one of the albatrosses that the X Men have under Hickman's run is that death has no meaning in the X Men universe if you can just you know go and go to Krakoa and having having being resurrected through the magic or the power of mutant five other mutants that can resurrect you or whatever it is there. But in any event, I, uh, it's, uh, I hope that DC doesn't abuse the, the use of the Lazarus resin too much. I, I don't, uh, although it is, it's kind of an interesting way maybe to bring heroes back in, in this, but this issue takes place. Uh, obviously it could, uh, off the events of last issue where Jason Todd is basically he's frozen and you know Astrid Arkham is like she wants to eat him because she's I mean they're all okay. dead so they're all basically zombies and what this issue does very effectively and the reason why I enjoyed it much more than the first is that I got a lot more information that actually I admit piques my interest because it's these it's this these Lazarus pills that that the at the that Bane and Astrid Arkham and all, all these characters are taking that you know, depending on how much you take, it will bring you back to life. And that's very effective. But what I'm, I'm I got to give Matthew Rosenberg a lot of credit here because I actually felt sorry for Astrid Arkham. I felt sorry for Bane. I, I really felt sorry because they're keeping Bane alive just enough to keep him almost like a, like a puppet, almost like brain dead, just his, his brain active enough to use him as a puppet. And same with Astrid Arkham. There's a there's a scene here where where Bane is literally trying to scream, and it was horrible, horrible. It's horrible what this Crispin, this Crispin, this leader of Task Force X, X Task Force Z, is doing to these villains. It's awful. And Jason Todd, I mean, I I just I can see why he's he's so upset because you know at one point Astrid Arkham, I mean, you know she wants at one point she actually goes up and she has her arms she had her legs ripped off last issue and she her legs grow back in order to grow Astrid Arkham's legs back they had to give her an extra amount of Lazarus uh, resin which uh, these Lazarus pills which had the effect of restoring some of her mental capacity and she she was normal again and she she's self-aware of what's going on but she knows that she can't leave because the the pills will wear off and she'll be dead again and there's a tragedy to it. You know, uh, Jace, I know that we always joke about how much you hate Amanda Waller. I'm not a big fan of Amanda Waller either, but this Crispin, there's a sickness and a horror element to him that I think he's even more sick than Amanda Waller. It, it, I almost get the element. I mean, Amanda Waller can be pretty cruel too, but there's a cruelty here in just sort of keeping the this Task Force Z just barely enough alive, but in a horrific state to control him. I found it very disturbing, but also very interesting. I also like the use of um, uh, this new character, Hannah Hobart, who is this character where she, you know, uh, she, she's got a demon that manifests itself at night. And so at, at one point near the end of this issue, they, they, they uh, infiltrate the Cobra cult. And, uh, and by infiltrating, infiltrating, infiltrating the Cobra cult, they're trying to rescue or trying to obtain uh, a particular prize, what, which ultimately ends up being what appears to be the body of Deadshot. And of course, we know that Deadshot 
if in fact this is the body of Deadshot, was was killed in in the issues of of Tom Taylor's Suicide Squad, and so it's it's going to be great to see Deadshot return. That's probably one of the worst kept secrets. We knew that at some point probably Deadshot was going to return, but it's interesting here. I also like Mister Bloom here. I hated Mister Bloom. I was not a fan of Mister Bloom when Scott Snyder introduced him as one of the Batman villains. He was one of my least favorite villains, but I actually like Mister Bloom here. Uh, he just you know. You know, he's he's got his own sense of of uh, agency in this issue that I thought was quite well. My favorite character is Astrid Arkham. I really feel sympathy toward her and Bane. I even feel for Jason Todd. In one single issue, I'm I, I'm actually more captivated by this concept of the Suicide Squad with this Lazarus resin. And there's a there's an element of cruelty to it that has drawn me in <laughs> despite its cruelty. And I really, I'm not liking this Crispin uh, character, this leader of the uh, Suicide Squad, but uh, of Task Force Z. But I'm in. I'm. I'm really curious to see where this is going. And it's good to see Deadshot return in the final page. And there's a there's an there's a particular sequence that happens at the end that I won't spoil for people. But this is. I'm definitely in. Uh, the first issue sort of annoyed me a little bit. I thought it was cliche, but this this has a different a different take on the Suicide Squad idea, and uh, I'm in. Yeah, I, I agree. I was going to mention the this idea of, of holding them prisoner with the with the pills and how, yeah, if there's anything similar between Task Force X and Task Force Z, it is that. It's this idea of, of control. Um, in a way, they're both using the idea of death as uh, as sort of the shackles, right? The, mm-hmm. the threat of imminent death if you're in the suicide squad. Um, and then, you know, if you want to stay alive and cheat death in the pages of Task Force C. But of course, in the last issue of, of Suicide Squad, we saw that even death didn't free uh, Calubra, right? They gave her some of those Lazarus resin pills. So that's yeah. your point about don't go too far, DC, so that death doesn't doesn't matter. You're removing the stakes. Um but yeah, I, I'm excited. I was very excited to see Deadshot show up at the end. Um, I I mean, you can imagine that he's been an interesting character ever since the very first Suicide Squad, or not the first, because that, that was back in the 60s, but the new version, the whole idea of Task Force Z version of Suicide Squad with Amanda Waller that appeared in the late 80s. Deadshot's been one of the characters that's that's been a member almost the whole entire time. Uh, and they've played with his morality at, at different times and whatnot. And I, I think that works really well. So how does being partially dead, partially alive affect that? How does it affect Floyd Lawton and his idea of, of what's right and what's wrong? So I'm interested to see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right about Mr. Bloom as well. How he, he seems to have a little more awareness than, than some of the others, despite the fact that they're supposedly limiting his uh, yeah. Lazarus pills. Yeah, but uh, he's he not actually happen. dead. I think that was revealed in the first issue. He's not actually dead. He's like Jason Todd, I thought. Okay. Or, or maybe I'm... That, that won't be the, maybe the case. I may have forgotten that. And that would explain why he seems to have his own plans that he's keeping very, very close to the vest. So yeah. we'll see how that all plays out. The other thing that we're seeing here, I'm, and I'm holding out judgment. I'm not sure how well it's working for me yet. The idea of Jason Todd having given up the guns. We saw that in, in previous issues of uh, of Batman and, and uh, the Urban Legends title. Now he's using crowbars, which is kind of like, dude, you were killed by a crowbar. <laughs> is that really what you want to use? So, you know, I get, I get the idea DC doesn't want to glorify gun use. I 100% sort of agree with that. 
uh, or not sort of, but I 100% agree with that. But in my mind, he always has used guns. It's so synonymous with who he is as a, as a character. I don't know how well that's going to work. So maybe it's just something I need to get used to. But that being said, the artwork by the whole art team, Eddie Barrows, Eber Ferrero, uh, Adriana Lucas, art here is fantastic. So this is a very fast-paced series. A lot happens in this issue. It feels like a big chunk of story. Matthew Rosenberg clearly has a, an idea of what he's doing. Um, I, I'll be curious to see if this is a title that, you know, this is the brainchild of Rosenberg. And when he's done telling the story that he has to tell, if it goes away or if if they would keep it going with somebody else coming on board. So, so I'm definitely curious about that. But give it a try. Um, it, it's definitely sort of a darker t- – if you can imagine you can go darker than Suicide Squad. This is <laughs> what this is uh, right now. So, uh, all right, moving on. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Aquaman Gr- Green Arrow. Deep target number two, it's called Inversions. It's from writer Brandon Thomas, Ronan Cliquet as the artist, Ulysses Ariola on color, colors, Josh Reed on letters. Uh, first of all, the art, Ronan Cliquet, very clean art, uh, very primary colors, which really helps this feel sort of super heroic, sort of classically so. Um, this does feel a little bit like a setup issue for, for what's coming next, and we, we see that on the last page. Uh, a big majority of the issue is... Um, this new version of Aquaman and Green Arrow, you know, they've sort of swapped lives, a little Freaky Friday action here. Uh, and they're traveling on a, an airplane trying to go investigate what's happened to them. And they get attacked. And they get attacked by the the leader of, of sort of the, I guess, the project that caused this to happen by by time travel, a little bit of a, a butterfly effect. And he's the one that uh, attacks him at the end. He's sort of half man, half uh, dinosaur. Uh, and he's asking them, Hey, how badly do you want your own lives back? Show me, which is interesting. But throughout this entire story, I've been assuming that that guy, for lack of a better word or a better term was the quote unquote, bad guy. Um, general Anderton is his name, but based on this, you, I started to wonder, um, like maybe he needs help to go back and write the like is I guess it all comes down to the fact that does is General Anderton happy that you know seen right out of the fly like the, the way he got mutated with um uh, with and, and sort of combined with the dinosaurs like that Jeff Goldblum movie The Fly where a fly got in the the teleporter so he he they had this time travel platform I guess kind of similar to the Fantastic Four one way back in the day uh, the Doctor Doom created um. So they go to transport him, you know, pull him back forward in time. And there was a little dinosaur, a little baby dinosaur was on the platform. And they didn't know it. And so then when he apparently rematerialized, he was like half man, half dinosaur. Um, and so I just, you just assume, you know, the whole idea of reptiles being evil and that sort of Western myth and whatnot, uh, that this guy just had his own plans, maybe want to take over the earth, blah, 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 whatever. But then at the end of this issue, you know, they, they get attacked they don't necessarily kill them, uh, but then he asks them, "How bad do you want your life back? Show me." So, is he actually is he trying to manipulate them into helping roll back the clock? But then they killed the two pilots. So, is it just a case of, well, we can kill whoever we want here because we're going to go back and change time, and when we change it, everything will be reset, and so the pilot and the co-pilot got killed, won't be dead, kind of thing. So, I, I don't know what to expect, which is kind of what I'm enjoying about the series because 
this feels like it's out of regular continuity as well from Brandon Thomas. So I don't, I don't have any idea what to expect, right? We're talking about time travel and any timeline can be flipped around and changed uh, to suit what the writer wants to do. It gives that sense of unknown and that sense of surprise. So I'll be curious to see, is this general Anderton like really a bad guy? Is he not a bad guy? Is there, is he actually, you know, are we going to find out next issue? There's some other, um, antagonist like I, I again i just don't know what to expect but i'm having a lot of fun it, it's even though this issue was set up there was a lot of action and it was fast paced uh and i'm enjoying the art so uh what do you think rocky i don't have a lot to add i this was this entire issue was virtually one giant action scene and it takes place mm-hmm. on a plane because basically it's oliver and arthur flying to star labs because they want to ask star labs what happened how come we've switched histories how come how come green arrow is aquaman and aquaman is green arrow how, how come we've switched it they want they're flying to star labs to figure it out and then the plane is attacked by seemingly what we think are the minions of this general anderton or maybe that's misdirection maybe it, it's not general anderton but they end up ironically enough curiously enough they end up on the island where Oliver Queen became green arrow or i guess in this case i guess arthur curry became green arrow i right. guess yeah so uh, because their identities are all mixed up because of the time shenanigans that have that have occurred and the same time shenanigans, as you say, turn General Anderton into sort of like this this dinosaur like a human dinosaur hybrid. And they just end up confronting the General Anderton at the end, who, you know, is wondering if they want to get their lives back. And that's really it, it ends. So uh, kudos to Ronan Cliquette. Uh, the artist, Cliquet, I think. Cliquet, sorry. Um, fantastic art. I mean, this was this was action packed. This was a lot of fun just to page through. I mean, this felt it felt cinematic. It felt action packed. This was this was this was a quick issue to read. But uh, as a compliment to the artist, I actually I slowed down because and I would go back a few pages just to look at the art because it was beautiful. It was very well done and it was action packed and and you know hey. Brandon Thomas, I mean, he if, if you have the real estate, sometimes you let the artist shine, and he clearly let the artist, uh, Cliquet, uh, shine this issue. Not a lot of story, not a lot of plot happened. You know, we, 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 we didn't, we started at point A, and we probably never, we never even got to point B, <laughs> but well, I guess we did, but, so, not a lot happens, but, uh, but, you know, look, comic books are both scripting and and the art and this was an issue where the art shines more than the writing per se and um, Brandon Thomas I, I get the impression that he just sort of went to Ronan Cliquet and said look show off your talents you know I don't care how you get to the island but they they're in a plane they end up on the island you can you know maybe he let he just let uh, Ronan Cliquet you know script the art I'd be curious to know uh, how they collaborated on this issue, but again, it was a, visually it was very stunning, and not a lot of story happened. But I'm I'm having fun with it, so I'll st- I'm still in for the long haul here. Yeah, if I'm right, and it turns out Anderton isn't necessarily the bad guy, I'm gonna love that we had that we slowed down in the second issue because let's say we didn't. Let's say that you know because you're right that this you probably could have taken half an issue, and then we could have got that turn and find out that Anderton is not really the bad guy; it's somebody else. I like the fact that, you know, we get a full issue because it's it's stretching out that plot point and it'll have that much more impact to have it in the third issue as opposed to the the first. You know what I'm saying? And and I do I do know that you were talking about it and I'm thinking about that. 
and I'm noticing that it is a seven issue mini oh. as opposed to a six. Yeah. So again, it, it could be, yeah, maybe it, maybe it could have got condensed down to six, but why not structure it a little bit different? Let Ronan have a, uh, a chance to shine and, yeah. and push that, that reveal out a little bit more. So we get that cool. Yeah. And, and, that and kudos to Ulysses Ariola on the colors, uh, bright colors. Yeah. Very, very well done as well. Agreed. So, all right, let's move on. Detective Comics number uh, 1045 from writer Mariko Tamaki. Dan Mora is the artist. Jordi Belair does colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. And there's a backup. Foundations from Stephanie Phillips with art by David Lapham. Colors by Trisha Mulvihill and letters by Rob Lee. Uh, so the main story is Nakano's Nightmare finale. This is, uh, again, the uh, the Fear State tie-in finale for uh, for Detective Comics. So what do you think here, Rocky? Did this ending make sense for you? Uh, yeah, it, it did. It didn't. Um, uh, I actually, Marika Tamaki has been. I've enjoyed her run on Detective. I think that she's uh, as a compliment to her. I like how she has. I I like how she has. Um, sorry, here. I I like how she's she's managed to tell of all the the writers of all the bat titles. She's managed to tell her own story. I, I like her story the best because she she's not she didn't let fear state overshadow the story that she wanted to tell, and she's managed to tell it uh, very well here. And the whole the whole idea she's she created this idea that in the midst of all this fear state is this Hugh Vile character who ultimately when he was defeated, he still he has these he's there's this virus that's going around with these. These sick, these sick, twisted little little cells that are all over Gotham, and Batman gets infected. Hunters end up getting infected. Multiple people getting infected. Even Mayor Nakano uh, ends up getting infected. Last issue ended with Batman utilizing, you know, sh utilizing a basically a, a, a taser to shock, or not a taser, but a, uh, I think it was a, a, t a taser of some kind to, to shock and to, to burn the the Huvile virus out of Mayor Nakano's system, and. Sends Maricano back to back to uh, uh, I guess the mayor's office, where he ultimately, you know, continues to play the role leading into Fear State, which is in the other issues. But the, the main story itself here flows very well because we we're we're more concerned about what the hell's going to happen with this Hugh Vile, with this disgusting sort of virus creature that sort of change changes into this great hulking sort of. Uh, well, Batman calls it uh, the uh, it's the evolution of a problem unsolved because they they thought this Uvile thing was just a, a a temporary virus and in the general scheme of things Gotham is faced worse than a virus but this thing it's one of those things they sort of it, they left it unchecked and it it continued to grow and in the midst everyone's focusing on fear state meanwhile you got this you got this crisis that's brewing with this virus and potentially infecting all all kinds of people but uh. You know, this has been uh, very well. Dan Mora's art is fantastic. Uh, again, Jody Belair on the co colors done a really good job here. This is one. Uh, this is a a story that encompasses multiple members of the Batman family, but the focus on Bruce Wayne and this Sarah Worth who dies and her father, uh, Mister Worth, this sort of like corrupt businessman who blames Batman and and then him being used by the Penguin and Batman becoming infected. Uh, Marika Tamaki here, writer Marika Tamaki, did a really good job here. This is, I think that this story in Detective flows 
I think is was structured and, and flows better than the story of how Fear State turned out. Granted, Fear State had a lot more moving parts, but I like I like of all the of all the individual writers that were editorially mandated to, to you know sort of shoehorn in Fear State into their storylines, I thought Marika Tamaki has handled it the best. Stephanie Phillips has done an admirable job in 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 uh, Harley Quinn, but uh, I think Tamaki just went went it's uh, just a little bit uh, a little bit more gravitas and 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 I had more fun and and a little uh, I just really enjoyed. I, I guess maybe I like the the villain better. I like Hugh Vile as the villain and and the fallout even after his death. I like the fallout from that as opposed to the villain of Keepsake in the pages of Harley Quinn, which is but. That's probably an unfair comparison because one's kind of more comedy and parody, whereas this is a little bit more serious and horrific. But uh, overall, I thought this worked well. I actually thought this made Mayor Nakano feel a little bit heroic because I always thought Mayor Nakano has always come across like kind of a really idiot politician here. But he actually listens to Batman. Batman criticizes him because Mary Cano, you know, Batman tells him, look, I tried to warn you, but you you, you have your own agenda of being against vigilantes. Uh, you know, so I tried to warn you about Hugh Vile, but I mean, you know, trying to contact the, the mayor's office if I'm a vigilante, it's like you're blaming me, your cops, you put the cops against me, you got the magistrate. So Batman sort of puts Marinacano in his place. And Marinacano, of course, we know actually ends up listening because we know at the end of Fear State, Marinacano publicly apologizes to the citizens of Gotham City for making a mistake uh, with Simon Saint and the magistrate. So there's 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 connective tissue here with what uh, Tamaki has done in the, into Fear State. And I think with artist Dan Mora, th this is just there's it's consistent. It's good. It's uh, I, I'm satisfied with this. I'm satisfied with this. And be interesting to know your viewpoint. If you if you I, I think I enjoyed the cohesiveness of Marika Tamaki's detective story with Hugh Vile uh, than how F Fear State ended. But uh, you feel the same way? Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, you could, in my mind, you could take the Fear State, like, trade dress off of this and not even know that it's tied in with Fear State. Yeah. She just did what she wanted to do. And it, I, I sort of wish, I think Nightwing, did, it impacted what Tom Taylor was trying to do normally the most. And this one, it impacted Marika Tamaki's plans the best. So I don't know if that was just luck that the storyline that Marika Tamaki happened to be telling just, you know, made sense to just keep telling that story for Fear State. Uh, you know, obviously mm -hmm. Batman, she's telling Bruce Wayne stories and he's in Gotham as opposed to, you know, Tom, poor Tom Taylor had to take Nightwing over, you know, Dick Grayson from Bloodhaven and bring him over to Gotham. So, you know, just inherently more disruptive. So, yeah, I think it, it worked very well. I do agree with you about Mayor Nakano. Um, and, and again, he's he's kind of come out of nowhere to be this really significant character in Gotham City over the last year. The problem is that everybody's having to put him in their stories because he's such an integ integral part of Fear State and Magistrate and, and those decisions and what have you. But his characterization, because it's a character that's not really established, his characterization has been a little bit all over the place. So, yeah, he does come across as an idiot, a bigger idiot sometimes than others. Sometimes he comes across as just somebody who's overwhelmed. Um, I, I do sort of agree that Tamaki's given him the best characterization. He seems to have learned from his mistakes, and hopefully he'll be an ally for Batman going forward. Maybe he has the potential to be a, a good character, despite his auspicious beginnings. 
I guess we'll wait and see. But yeah, overall, I thought this was successful. I agree with you about Dan Moore's art. Just fantastic. Uh, he, he's got a chance in my mind to be a, a really classic Batman artist if he stays on the character uh, for a long time. Uh, I also thought that the the colors in this issue worked really, really well. Um, the red wasn't used as much as it could have been, which I appreciated because then when the red popped up, whether it's the red of the, the virus, which is that's what it is most of the time, but but even on the, the page with Batwoman, uh, I thought it worked really, really well and, and helped make it be more impactful. You know, not a surprise. Jordi Belair knows what she's doing when it comes to colors. But with a story that's so tied in with the Hugh Vile virus, the temptation could have been red, 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 red. And I think it would have been would have been too much. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic. As far as the backup goes, um, first of all, it has to be an honor for Stephanie Phillips to work with a legend like David Lapham. Um, I, I talked last issue when we got the first part of this backup story about how we don't need, you know, I talked ranted a little bit, to be honest about how, God, why would anybody want to rebuild Arkham as Arkham tower, you know, like <laughs> let it die. Yeah. Um, and it seems like I'm on the same page with Harley Quinn who shows up of all people who shows up on the last, uh, last page here. So yeah, maybe we are going to see the, the end. Maybe we will be heading more toward that idea that James Tynan put in his, um, in his bat thoughts newsletter where he's was pitching to DC to, to create Pennyworth tower, you know, um, a, a place for people to go to actually get help instead of being tied into this horrific past that is uh, Arkham asylum. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, didn't know what to, to expect uh, from this story. It took a bit of a turn with Harley here and uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see, but um, I, I'm, and I'll talk about it more when we get to, to the Harley Quinn issue, but uh Stephanie Phillips is quickly becoming my favorite writer of Harley Quinn. Uh, but yeah, like, I'll, like I said, I'll talk a little bit about that more later, but uh, any, any thoughts on the backup Rocky? Yeah. The, the thing about the backup is that it allows artist David Lapham to show up his talents, just like, uh, just like uh, the artist on, on deep Aquaman and green arrow deep, deep target. Uh, yeah, this was good. I mean, again, not a lot of story in the backup. It's just Batman going to Arkham tower and uh, in, and basically forces want to blow up the tower to tear it down. Uh, but there's, there's fear gas in the tower. And so if you blow up the tower, then there's a danger that more of the fear gas is going to infect the citizens of Gotham. So that's not an option. And what ultimately ends up happening is uh, they here, he ends up running into uh, Harley Quinn and that's really how, how it ends. And he also ends up getting dosed. Batman gets dosed with a fear toxin and he hallucinates again. And most of the scenes are again, allows David Lapham to show off his art. And again, to great effect, to great effect. Again, not probably not essential reading for a story in and of itself, but it's uh, again the art is fantastic, and again uh, David Lapham's version of Harley just looks adorable. So it's actually quite quite <laughs> interesting. So I'm definitely it'll be worth interesting to see how it ends and see what Harley. I I mean we know Arkham Tower is ultimately going to be the new Arkham Asylum from future issues. I don't think it's going to end up being destroyed. But it's going to be interesting to hear Harley's Harley's argument to maybe uh, take it down. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, all right, well, let's move on to Wonder Woman Black and Gold. We're up to issue number six. This is the final issue. Uh, first of all, fantastic main cover from Lee Bermejo. Lee's one of my favorite artists working in comics right now. I buy all the covers he does just because he's so amazing. Uh, it's just a fantastic cover. I'll, I'll, and the Stephanie Hans cover and the David uh, Nakayama cover were 
were solid as well. Like, man, I, I was glad that Lee did one of these covers because I would have struggled to choose between the other two. So I could just say, I'm just getting the Lee Bermejo because I get all Lee stuff and it's, it, you know, I'll have the other two digitally, I guess. Uh, but a lot of good stories as well. Uh, I'll run down the lineup here. We written and drawn by Marguerite Savage. The first story is called Role Model, lettered by Wes Abbott. Then we have the next story written and drawn by Liam Sharp called The Prophet, also lettered by Wes Abbott. A Lesson in Truth, written by Michael W. Conrad, art by Noah Bailey, lettered by Pat Broso. Attack of the 50-Foot Wonder Woman, written by Christos Gage, fantastic art by Kevin McGuire, colors by Adriana Lucas, and lettered by Clayton Cowles. And then the last one, Fresh Air in Philly, written by Dr. Sheena Howard, art by Jamal Campbell, lettered by Pat Broso. Uh, the first one's probably my least favorite. There's like um, a Greta Grunberg-type character who apparently got her start in politics with climate and whatnot when she was very young you see the g20 uh symbol there behind her which is the big uh, climate summit uh, and apparently wonder woman was always there for her when she was being attacked or harassed or whatnot um and we see that she's much older now and she she appreciates that wonder woman was always there for her and wonder woman talks about um how it was the least she could do. And she doesn't necessarily feel like a role model, like this woman is calling her. But then we see at the end, Wonder Woman is, is um, sort of watching the back of another young girl who's uh, attempting to uh, influence the world for the better and, and make changes. So just that idea of Wonder Woman being this enduring role model and inspiration, which I suppose is sort of meta in a way, because uh, Wonder Woman, even though she's a fictional character, has inspired a lot of women over the years. So, uh, so pretty solid. Uh, and, it, you know, it's typical Marguerite Sauvage art. So a uh, little bit stylized, a little bit cartoony, but definitely gets the message across. Uh, anything to add for the first story, uh, Rocky? I actually I actually like Marguerite Bennett's art better here than I've seen in the past. I, I find Marguerite Sauvage. Marguerite Sauvage. Sorry, <laughs> I said Bennett, didn't I? Uh, yeah. Marguerite Sauvage, yeah, because I find Marguerite Sauvage, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of her work on uh, DC bombshells and a lot of her work is on Future State. It just seemed to have a harder edge to it uh, on, on the faces. Uh, this one, actually, I actually like it better. It seems to be a little bit softer uh, than what I, I normally see it. And I love the use of the coloring. I, I like, you know, sort of a creative use on, on the colors for, you know, you know, obviously Wonder Woman's outfit is usually the stars and stripes are usually like blue and white, but uh, I like the, uh, it was nice and, and a good, a, another, a great message. So it's, this is one of those stories where it's, you know, it, it's just, it's a feel good story. There's, there's nothing wrong with the story. It's got a great message and uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily blow me away because it, Wonder Woman is a role model. So there's nothing that really stands out about it, but it is nice to know that Wonder Woman is is always around, you know, much like Superman is. So it was a good feel, good story. Yeah, the the next story by Liam Sharp. Uh, Liam himself even says in the credits, based on the mother of all dreams, and he he puts himself in the story. <laughs> he is a character in the story, and I love it. I love the fact that he's drawing himself here and talking about this dream that he had uh, about just this sort of epic saga of the Amazons where there was this, you know, these, uh, these tribes that sort of warred against each other in the very early days of the Amazons before uh, the, the tribes of Amazons all sort of uh, united under the rule of, uh, of Hippolyta. But yet there was this one uh, Amazon. She was the, the princess of her tribe, Ber Berkta or Birchta. Um, Berkta, yeah. 
who who was always jealous of Diana because she felt that you know her tribe should have been the one that was the ruling tribe. She should have been that beloved princess and whatnot. And uh, even at the end of the story, uh, with the sort of the closing credits, it says only the beginning because the one thing about this story is it does feel like there's so much. Like I'm ready to read this from Liam. I'm ready to read uh, the whole thing. You know, uh, the art is fantastic as Liam's art often is. Um, interesting that we're getting it in black and white here and he colors it also and he uses the yellow you know the whole idea of those black and gold with a limited color palette he uses the yellow or the gold so sparingly i mean there's pages that, that have none of it yeah. uh but when he does use it it's this very dark rich yellow which, that i really enjoy yeah. uh, but then he sort of saves it all till the end when he, you know his character in the story gets to come face to face with wonder woman she's just beautiful bathed in in the, the lightning and the yellow and the gold and whatnot. It's just a beautiful image. And, uh, and I hope we do get this full story from Liam someday. Cause I, I would yeah. be uh, very interested in reading it. So I, I just I, want I to love... quickly add that, that the lightning in, in some of the panels, uh, it's very subtle that it's the lightning that's yellow. And as the lightning gets closer, it gets more pronounced the yellow in the panels. Mm -hmm. And then finally yeah. the lightning, it's actually Diana coming closer to him as he's talking, the lightning's coming closer to him. And it's actually Diana who arrives to basically, you know, give him an epiphany. And, and, and so that's, it's very, it's very well done. It's very subtle, but the lightning is there. And it's the one wonder woman is the lightning coming to, to his rescue is, is the way I interpreted it. I thought it was very well done. Liam Sharp just just really nailed it here and he put himself in the story which is hilarious so <laughs> yeah it's so it's so fun yeah. so fun can't wait to have him sign a i'll get a copy of this hard copy of this just so i can have him sign like right over his own his own self yeah i so. just i'm i'm curious is that uh does he have a wonder woman series coming out i uh, as far as i know uh he doesn't have any dc work coming out now that he's finished batman reptilian he's going to because... be focusing in the new year on his Starhenge series, his first crater round. Yeah, because I'm, I'm wondering, I know that we got Trial of the Amazons coming up as, as yeah. an event for DC. And I know that we got the three tribes of Amazons. There's, there's going to be, there's going to be uh, some, there's going to be some political machinations and geopolitical machinations. There's going to be a, a group of, there's going to be a, a race that's going to claim, claim the land on Themyscira. And some of the Amazons are going to side uh, against their own kind. And it's interesting that this 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 uh, Birchta character she might play a role in that, especially if if she has if she believes that maybe she's the one is is the true princess of the mascara and that her mother is the rightful queen. So uh, it's very interesting, you know, because I've always thought that if we got three tribes of Amazons. What I'm dying for, and I've I've always sort of uh, I've had private discussions with uh, you and uh, at least with, with uh, Dark Knight Nation, Trevor, uh, about you know I've always had in my head canon a, a Game of Thrones type story for Wonder Woman and the Amazons in my own sort of my own personal story that I would that I would tell if I was ever a writer, and I really hope they're going to do something like that, but I'm probably asking too much, but that's what I'm hoping because this this feels epic. This feels like there's a lot at stake here with this Birchta character and and boy I just it's too bad Liam Sharp can't draw all of it because this this feels like it has gravitas. I'm like you, I want to know the continuation of this story. This Birchduck character, she looks like she's kick ass. But yeah, I, and again, I have no idea if she'll be. I, I have no idea if Liam was involved in any of the trial of the Amazon stuff, and they took his idea, or 
or if he's told them about it, but it's just not the right time and he'll come back at a later date to do the story. So yeah, mm -hmm. no clue, but agree that I would, I would want more of it. Uh, okay. Lesson in truth is up next. Michael W. Conrad art by Noah Bailey, as I mentioned. So this, this one was kind of weird for me. That's definitely my least favorite one. It feels more like tan or brown than, than gold. Um, yeah. And the art style is sort of cartoony. So in that way, I felt like it, it didn't have as much impact, but it, but it ultimately it is a feel good story about somebody who uh, Wonder Woman influences. And despite the fact that he has to pay a price for the choices he made, he goes to prison for 20 years. He does in the end uh, benefit from his, his lesson learned with, uh, with Wonder Woman. So, uh, you know, a lesson in truth, I guess is, is the name of it. And that, that does fit in that title does fit in with the story. So I, I just thought this one was okay. It was, it was my least favorite. what do you think Rocky? Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It was okay. It, it wasn't, I wasn't, it's, I'm not a art is subjective. Of course it wasn't my cup of tea, uh, but there's, there's nothing wrong with the art. It just feels a little bit, uh, you know, it's just not what I'm accustomed to, but it, again, it has a good message. It was, it was structured well. It read well, the, the the message was clear. I thought it was, you know, it, it was a nice, it was, it's sort of like, um, Marguerite S uh, Savage in her story there. It was, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a feel good story with a, with a good message at the end that, uh, uh, thank you for the lesson in truth, you know, that the individual, despite, despite spending all that, that time in prison, he, he did actually learn something, but, uh, so, but again, what wasn't my, wasn't my favorite of the issue, but it's not, it's not like it's bad. Yeah, the the next one uh, sort of tied with uh, the Liam Sharp as my my favorite Attack of the Fifty Foot Wonder Woman. I thought was uh, so fantastic. A lot of it has to do with the Kevin Maguire art. Oh, for sure. I just love the art in this issue. Um, again, nobody does facial expressions in comics better than Kevin Maguire. Uh, the whole idea of Wonder Woman and Giganta switching powers is fun. I love the characterization, Christos Gage gives giganta it, like as much as i complain about dc and, and marvel does this too like re, more and more over the last decade to 15 years they've been turning the villains into anti-heroes or straight up heroes you know i com yeah. was complaining about it the other day with black manta but the dynamic here between giganta and wonder woman makes me sort of makes me want giganta to follow that path to try to be uh good for a change you know, like I, 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 she feels like somebody who maybe could be a friend to Wonder Woman or, or at least a reluctant partner, you know, like I, I much rather would read Giganta and Wonder Woman teaming up, going after somebody than I would the, when Maxwell Lord, you know, that thing like fell apart when they tried to team up Maxwell Lord and Wonder Woman, that, that just didn't work for me at all. Um, but this sort of worked for me. I really, I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought that the use of the color was really great. I mean, Giganta, I've never, I think this is a new version of her costume. I've never seen this version of her costume before, but it did have the nod to the sort of super friends, old school silver age version of the costume where for no reason other than, I guess they thought it looked cool. Yeah. Giganta would wear a leopard print <laughs> ba uh, bathing suit, which never made sense to me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just really enjoyed this. I thought it was really, really great. Beautiful art. Uh, yeah, just just fantastic. So 
this this one was a heck of a lot of fun and and like these kind of stories like as much as i've complained about too many of these limited color palette series lately so this is exactly the kind of story that shows that there can be value in this when we get something a story like this that can stand on its own and you don't even need to know who giganta is and you can read this and uh and enjoy it so i thought it was a whole lot of fun yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. This, this was Kevin McGuire is a master at the facial expressions, and especially what he does with with the characters' lips and their and their and their facial lines, and he, he's just a master at it. And this year with Giganta, he sort of flips the script. Giganta switches powers. Clarion the Witch Boy, she gets Clarion the Witch Boy to to basically take Wonder Woman's powers away, but it ends up going awry. The 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 plan and it ends up. Sp- you know, she ends up with Wonder Woman's powers, and she, and Wonder Woman ends up becoming really a, a giant attack. Of course, that's hence the phrase of the title, "Attack of the Fifty Foot Wonder Woman." And Wonder Woman is a little bit; uh, her mind's a little bit fuzzy because of the the process that enlarges her body, and Gigant is well aware of that. And th- this speaks to one of the one of the main one of the main characteristics of most of Wonder Woman's rogues gallery in that they're broken. Wonder Woman's rogues gallery, most of them, they're all broken inside somehow. And they're never, they're not inherently evil per se, but they're always, there's there's a part of them that's missing. And Wonder Woman is always trying to get them to be better and always giving them an opportunity to embrace the better angels of their nature. And that's what Giganta does here. Giganta could easily have escaped and just left Wonder Woman to wreak havoc on the city, but she... The, her guilt got the best of her. Giganta's always been kind of a curious villain to me. I, I've never really gotten a handle on her. And then you talked about her costume on the Super Friends. That's just one aspect of the character. I find Giganta to be a character that is just... I don't I don't really get her. The last time I saw Giganta, she was a... Jay Willow Wilson used her in her run on Wonder Woman. And, uh, and actually, her and Wonder Woman teamed up as well. So Giganta's always been someone who... She's had a sort of an odd relationship with Wonder Woman. She's kind of, you know, kind of sides with Wonder Woman then is a little bit of a villain. She it's like she can't make up her mind what she wants to do and but Wonder Woman always gives her the benefit of the doubt. It's nice nice to see uh here that Crystal's Cage, the writer, has some fun with it, flips the script a little bit and has Giganta having to be the hero here and um uh, still ends up going to jail at the end, but it was a nice story. And like I say, this is probably, you know, along with Liam Sharp, it's a, it's a, it's a tie for first. Both are really excellent stories. Yeah, I agree. I, I would love to own a page of either one of those stories, uh, original art for sure. Yeah. Uh, all right. Last last story is called Fresh Air in Philly from Dr. Sheena C. Howard. Jamal Campbell, beautiful art in this one. So the whole idea of this, of convenience stores having to sell air in Philly because there's something wrong with it. Uh, and Nubia stumbles across a, a robbery with these guys wearing gas masks. And then Wonder Woman ends up showing up and they sort of team up and find out that Poseidon is behind it all. He doesn't like that uh, the humans of earth are, are poisoning the oceans. And so he's released this toxin into the air. And uh, so clearly Dr. Sheena Howard is from Philly because the, the whole idea of Philly and cheesesteaks and whatnot plays uh, a role in the story. It's talked about wouldn't, sur- I don't know what she's a doctor of, but it wouldn't surprise me if she, uh, ha- you know, has concerns about the environment or whatnot. Cause that, that played a, a role so interesting that the first story you know they mentioned the environment g20 and whatnot uh and then the last one finishes up with that as well uh the jamal campbell art to me like the story is fine you know it, it's it's fun it's well scripted it's well paced 
But where the story really comes to life is the art, because Jamal Campbell is a just a fantastic artist who doesn't get talked about enough in terms of how amazing he is. Um, I mean, the scene where Wonder Woman goes to, to confront Poseidon, and we get sort of the Poseidon's eye view, because he's so much larger than her, looking down on Wonder Woman, and the, the look on her face and whatnot. Yeah, that, that one right there, that panel in the upper right there, just gorgeous, just fantastic. Uh, and I'll also say, I think Jamal Campbell draws the favorite newbie I've seen. She's more gorgeous than ever under uh, his pen. Uh, and it's, it's fantastic. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed the story, especially the art. Um, I've only been to Philly once, but I did have a cheesesteak. So I guess I, <laughs> I guess I, I understand the, uh, the love of, of cheesesteaks. So any thoughts on the, the last story yourself? Uh, fantastic art. It's great to see uh, Wonder Woman, Diana, and Nubia team up uh, in this story. It's great. They take on Poseidon and Athena. Uh, a, a minor little nitpick, it seems uh, this is sort of like the typical gods, you know, interfering with mankind. Poseidon taking it upon himself to judge humanity because of uh, climate, you know, climate change or polluting the oceans or whatever. And Athena, you know, it's interesting that Wonder Woman gets her wisdom. She has the <coughs> Athena gave gifted Wonder Woman some of her wisdom and yet Athena and Poseidon are both against Wonder Woman and Nubia in this in this short story again I find that kind of interesting it's the gods are always a strange I've always got a wonder the gods in Wonder Woman stories are always doing contradictory convoluted things that I, I always have a difficult time reconciling with on the one hand they'll judge humanity and then the other hand uh, they'll they'll step back and then on the other hand, you'll get stories like this where Nubia and Wonder Woman have to combine their efforts to put Poseidon and Athena in their place. And there's no punishment. You know, Poseidon isn't punished. Athena's not punished. They're just sort of defeated and, you know, as if, and, uh, you know, they're not even caged or jailed and everything else. But I digress. Uh, Jamal Campbell, wow, fantastic art, gorgeous art. You're 100% right. This was, this is, I, I don't even care about the story, even though I did, I did nitpick it, like, because it's a Wonder Woman story. It's my, that's what I often do. But this is absolutely gorgeous. I, you know, like I said, this was very well done. The use of the yellow in this story was particularly uh, well done uh, with, uh, again, just with, with all the golden plate armor. Nubia looks fantastic. She's the best drawn character there. Uh, the magic lasso, uh, the tiara. Uh, I mean, it's well scripted. The a the action is well choreographed here. So kudos to Jamal Campbell. It's he put a lot of thought into how he choreographed the action scenes in this short story. Very very well done. I I you know I I love the character of Naomi. It's a great character, but I wish Jamal Campbell. I'd like to see him more on on mainstream DC superheroes, quite frankly, because uh, he's just that talented an artist and to great effect in this story. Yeah, and let's not uh, sell Dr. Sheena Howard short either. Uh, great characterization of Nubia. Yes. A little a little less severe, a little less serious than we've seen Nubia uh, in the past, and certainly in the pages of her own uh, Nubia in the Amazon title, which is totally working for me. This is just a different take on Nubia. It feels like she's a little younger here, and I, I like it. It's, it's a fresh take, so <clears throat> I'd be yeah. curious to see more of her work as well. Uh, all right, let's move on to Flash number 776 from writer Jeremy Adams, penciled by Fernando Passerin, inked by Matt Ryan. We have colors by Jeremy Cox and letters by Rob Lee. A very, very meta, very meta, I can't stress how meta it is, uh, issue. But I know you've been digging on the uh, the Jeremy Adams Flash, so I'm curious <laughs> if, if this sort of meta in-your-face idea of the story worked for you or not, Rocky. It it actually it 
it did work for me. It did work for me. You know, it's interesting. DC has been... Uh, there's a theme in the D- current DC comic books right now. The first theme has to do with Laz- the Lazarus pits, the Lazarus resin, Lazarus pills, et cetera, et cetera. And the other theme has to do, a lot of the writers here are having fun breaking the fourth wall. We got Ambush Bug over in the pages of Suicide Squad. And we also had uh, Gene Luen Yang deal a lot with breaking the fourth wall with uh, the AI I Arterio in the pages of Batman and Superman in his like whatever eight or nine issue run there. And he had a lot of, and so there's been a lot of breaking the fourth wall. And here we get another breaking of the fourth wall with Dr. Fate. And Dr. Fate once shows up, he showed up last issue to, to grab Wally and say, look, I need your help. Uh, I need your help. We need to uh, eventually, we need to go and take on Eclipso. And they end up in a, in a two dimensional realm here. And what is, what is, what I love about this is there's, is that it incorporates the reader and Dr. Fate turns right toward the reader and says, you, the reader of the book, our fate is in your hands, lies in your hands. And it reminds me so much. I, I even have the, the classic flash that says the classic flash cover. I actually have it hanging on my wall saying, stop, uh, please buy this book. My life depends on it or something. You know, that those classic, it, it just sort of reminds me of that. It's sort of pulling the reader right into this story. How can you not want to continue reading this when Dr. Fate is pointing right at you as you're on the page telling you to to help them on their quest? And th- I enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. They, they, I mean, literally, I mean, it's a little bit, I mean, it's a little, you could, you could maybe criticize it. Although I think you'd be overly harsh to say, is this for children? I mean, uh, I mean, you gotta, you, you, you're reading the comic book. Obviously this is something that's going to read better as a floppy, not on digital. You know, you can help Dr. Fate and Flash overcome some of the obstacles by turning the page and Dr. Fate and Flash are asking the reader to turn the page and flip the page and make it horizontal so they can, because everything's they're, they're in a two dimensional universe. And so, you know, this, it's not three dimensional, it's two dimensional. And so the rules, rules of magic are different and Dr. Fate is struggling with that. And I just, I, I love it. A lot of things are, you know, maybe counterintuitive here. And at the end, what I, what I found, I was completely surprised at the end. I get to the end and Dr. Fate basically says he, he, he's, he's looking in a, in a, sort of like his book of spells and the only way that they're going to get by and get to the final step where they can finally reach their destination to get through this two-dimensional place that they're in is that he sends the readers back in order to find to find these glyphs these different glyphs and there's a there's a red circle glyph a blue triangle glyph and a yellow triangle glyph where at the end uh you have to you have to identify at the end which glyph appeared first in the comic. And so you, it, it forced me to go back to the beginning of the comic. And I'm almost embarrassed to say how long it took me to find the glyphs. <laughs> but it took me 15 minutes to find all three. I That's never how, did. I never did find all of them. Well, I can tell you where they are. On uh, You got to find the red circle is on page 4 of 21. I'm going to show you here on the page. Uh, so on page 4 of 21... On page four of twenty-one, right beside the uh, Doctor Fate's left ear is the red circle. Can you see it? Oh yeah, R- right yeah. under the the, yeah. the word balloon. That's the yeah. red circle. So that appears first. The next is the blue triangle on page on page nine, which uh, is actually right behind. It's it's actually. Let me oh, see. I- 
on the floor there behind flash yes yes yeah right okay. there how did I, I i could see it on the small screen i couldn't see it on my own big giant screen when i was yeah. looking at it right and then the last one is on page 12 and i'll just jump to it here page 12 it's right behind them under all the under all the people. Oh yeah, I missed that. It's the I yellow blended, triangle. Yeah, it's, I blended in with his cape. Jeez, man. Yeah. So, so therefore, when you get to the end, in order to help Doctor Fate and Flash overcome the final obstacle, you've got to push the red circle first, the blue triangle, followed by the yellow triangle, and then boom, uh, magic light appears, and then you end up uh, being in Gem World because that's where they needed to go. Is Gem World. Uh, and then uh, Amethyst of Gemworld is there, Princess of Gemworld, along with the Justice League Dark. I'm loving this, man. I, I'm i having so much fun. Jeremy Adams, <laughs> man, I love his imagination. He's having fun. I love this title because I'm getting this. There's nothing better than not only am I enjoying the stories, but I'm getting the sense that the writer, Jeremy Adams, is enjoying writing these stories. And penciled by Fernando Passerin does a fantastic job. The detail uh, in all these pages and and the imagination that went into them and and again hiding the glyphs, which took me at least fifteen minutes to find. And it's not like I timed myself; I just got embarrassed after a while. But in any event, <laughs> I enjoyed it. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, getting the the reader involved. Uh, I. Don't have your patience. I probably spent five minutes looking for the glyphs, and I, I thought I found one, but apparently I didn't because it wasn't any of the ones that you, that you pointed out, and the ones you pointed out are much more obvious to me now. Obviously, um, yeah, the art's fantastic. How this is going to play in with Gemworld and Eclipso, you know, it, again, it feels instantly classic Flash, um, because I feel like some of my favorite Flash stories back in the day with Barry Allen were the ones that crossed over with, you know, Green Lantern or Green Arrow or, you know, other characters. And so, you know, we're getting Amethyst. We're getting, you know, just looking at, at who else is in the background there. The Demon, Ragman, Zatanna. Uh, clearly, it's the Justice League Dark. So, uh, and Dr. Fate, uh, uh, I, you know, I love it. And the art by Fernando Passerin is fantastic. Gorgeous art. I love the fact that he's he's got Dr. Fate in, in what looks like... Uh, Chuck Taylor tennis shoes. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just so different than what we usually see Dr. Fate. So yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, and I think the color work is, was fantastic as well. Cause again, I've, I say this all the time when you, we have those bright colors that are a little more primary that we get from Jeremy Cox. It, it gives it more of a, a, you know, kind of that happy go lucky superhero feel as opposed to, uh, you know, darker colors that, that make it moody. So definitely working for me. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Deathstroke Inc. Number three. Joshua Williamson is a writer. Howard Porter on art. Hi-Fi on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Sort of continuing in this theme that we've had uh, of of issues here. This is the best of this series that we've had so far. I'm still not 100 percent sure what the point of this Deathstroke Inc. Uh, is. We we have seen uh, like a a Deathstroke image that came out of the last solicits for books in February, where Deathstroke sort of sitting on a a throne. It felt very much Conan the Barbarian, King Conan to me. Um, so I guess we'll see how that plays out. But uh, yeah, Deathstroke basically goes into this fantasy world and, and kidnaps Cheetah because she's been um, she's been recruited by this uh, Queen of Fables 
person to to become the the ruler of this realm and she feels like she finally finds a place where she belongs and she's beloved but unbeknownst to her all the actual subjects are feel like it's worse off that she's she's not actually a good ruler no surprise there as a uh, sort of self-involved as she is but uh, it's an interesting fight between the two very action-packed uh the kinetic feel of the howard porter art works for me in this story because it is a fantasy world that's very brightly colored uh, so I didn't mind uh, kind of the looseness of his art. And the other thing I really enjoyed about it is, is we're starting to get some answers about who trust is. And we get the appearance of a character that had only appeared in DC for like one, one story arc before Grant Morrison did what Grant Morrison does, go back and mine DC history, went back and pulled this character Libra, put them in the pages of final crisis and like completely leveled them up and made them a very interesting and formidable foe sort of been left on the wayside since then. Uh, but apparently Joshua Williamson, who's a very much a, a DCO file himself, uh, looks like he's bringing Libra back uh, as well. So love that we're getting some answers and some hints and some clues uh, about who trust is not surprised that that trust is going to turn out to be the injustice gang, which is sort of a classic DC villain concept. Um, so yeah, I thought this was far and away the best issue of this series so far. Still not a hundred percent what the point of Deathstroke Inc. is, but if the point is to bring back the Injustice Gang and have, uh, Deathstroke team up with Black Canary to try to take out the Injustice Gang, then I'm, I'm here for it. So, uh, what did you think of this one, Rocky? I, uh, I think it was, it dragged on a little bit too much with Deathstroke being in the land with, with Queen of Fables, where... Uh, Queen of Fables basically creates magical lands in books and then you can take the page of whatever fantasy you want and then enter that realm. That's what Cheetah did. Deathstroke went after her and there was a lot of uh, Howard Porter. It definitely showed off his art here. So fans of Howard Porter, you're going to love this. Uh, I'm not I, I'm not a uh, I actually found his art to be better than in previous issues here. So it's it's sort of slowly grown on me. I'm not a huge Howard Porter fan, but I have to admit uh, the the colors here are, are really bright. Uh, Hi-Fi on the colors did a fantastic job. And Howard Porter, yeah, he's, he's sort of winning me over. And Joshua Williamson, I got to give him full credit because um, there, there's a, there's some major revelations here that you, you sort of alluded to. But uh, one of the things that we discovered in, in issue one was Juliet Ballantyne is the leader of trust. And to be very clear here, it's Justin Ballantyne is actually the secret identity of Libra. So one has to wonder, is Juliet Ballantyne the new Libra or is she the sister of the original Justin Ballantyne who was Libra? Or is she like the wife or is she just in the new Omniverse? Is she the new Libra uh, to begin with? Uh, now, Libra is a character that now this is significant because jo Joshua Williamson is using the Deathstroke Incorporated series, I think, to, to introduce and to bring forward multiversal characters from the DC Universe. He's already brought in the Weird. We got the Cyborg Superman last issue and the Weird is a cosmic entity as well. Now we get Libra. Now Libra, at the end of Final Crisis, before Libra was essentially killed off, Libra was... Uh, was very powerful, was able to even at times fight off the Spectre. And uh, before killing him or after killing him, Lex Luthor in Final Crisis referred to Libra as the embodiment of the anti-life equation and was ultimately an agent of Darkseid. 
So Libra here, through through Juliet Ballantyne, if she's Libra or if somebody else is, I mean, she's got. It shows Juliet Ballantyne opening up a, a a giant closet with the costume of Libra there with the scales, because Libra is all about balance, the balance between good and evil. So it's really interesting here because is Libra? I mean, the new trust organization. This is the secret society of supervillains. Libra is the character that killed Martian Manhunter leading up to the events of uh, Final Crisis. And he's also someone that, that used to put the Justifier helmet on the human flame whose wish was granted by him killing the Martian Manhunter. So Libra was given a lot of agency by Grant Morrison, but he's relinked to the anti-life equation leading up to Final Crisis we already know Josh Joshua Williamson, who is writing Deathstroke Incorporated, is bringing in all these multiversal characters. He's writing Justice League Incarnate. We're leading into a big epic, another crisis event for DC in the summer of 20, 2022. This is, I think this Deathstroke Incorporated comic is something to keep an eye on. I like what Joshua Williamson is doing here. He's, he's dealing with DC continuity. He's respecting it more than any other writer because he is sort of steer handling the new crisis. And between Joshua Williamson, there's only one other writer at DC right now that I think is more beholden to the continuity than any than anything, and that's Jeremy Adams with what he's doing in The Flash because he brought in Eclipso and um, perhaps to a lesser extent, uh, Robbie Thompson on Suicide Squad. But in um, anyways, I'm having a lot of fun with this. I was more interested in the Libra revelation than, than anything else. Uh, this series, this issue ends with Deathstroke holding his sword above Black Canary, but Black Canary now is warning Oracle, you know, like you said, this is either the Secret Society of Supervillains or the Injustice Gang. They're, they're both sort of similar incarnations of the same sort of group. Uh, and Sheeta warns Sl Slade that, you know, you don't know what you're getting into. Uh, and of course, she's alluding to the fact that, you know, th there's a lot more at stake here. Is she alluding to the fact that maybe Darkseid is in play? I don't know. We don't know yet, but I like... You know, I'm as I, I, as a continuity guy. I really love this. I like what Joshua Williamson's doing and how this is playing out. Yeah, I agree. And I always thought, like the very first time I saw Libra, I just always assumed based on the way the costume looked that it was a woman. <laughs> and it wasn't until uh, we found out late, you know, with Morrison that it's it's this guy Justin. So yeah, is 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 a sister taken over? Juliet Ballantine is is the new Libra, or they've retconned that. It was always one like I I don't know what's going on, but yeah, definitely interested in what's going on. So we'll see. Uh, all right, up next we have uh, Harley Quinn number nine, Fear State Part Three. Again, this is the the final tie-in issue for uh, for Harley Quinn, written by Stephanie Phillips, as we mentioned earlier. Riley Rossmo on the art, Yvonne Placencia does the colors, Darren Bennett on letters. So, uh, what'd you think of this wrap up? Did it work for you, Rocky? Uh, yeah, it 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 did. It was a little bit um. Um, I, I'm kind of glad it's being wrapped up, uh, but I, I want to give some uh, compliments to Stephanie Phillips here because uh, I think she had, um, I, I think she had her work cut out for her here because Harley Quinn played a pivotal role in, in many ways in Fear State with respect to at least trying to get to, to Poison Ivy. And what, what I, I think in fairness to Stephanie Phillips the one thing that I like how this 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 ends for this particular issue is that Harley Quinn has her moment with Harley where she opens up 
and expresses her fears to Harley because Har- because Fear State, just to, as a reminder to people, Fear State ended ultimately the reason why Batman won was in large part because of the actions of Poison Ivy. Because Poison Ivy has been separated into two people. There's the, there's the, I guess there's the poison and then there's the Ivy. And there's the, the, the poison part is the dark and brooding type that is sort of pushed Harley away. And then there's the innocent Ivy that, that, that loves, still loves Harley. And Harley was afraid and she expresses it to Ivy in this issue as they go and, and before Ivy is going to merge with her, with Queen Ivy, her other darker half. And ultimately help win Fear State. Uh, she, you know, there's there's some there's some there's some deep character moments here where Harley and Harley and Ivy have have those moments at the end. Now there's there's um, as far as the the art, Riley Rosmo's art is very stylistic. There are people that will you know are, are not fans of it, but I think that if you uh, if you're if you've been here if you've made it this far to issue nine. I, I think the art's grown on me and, and the saving grace has been Stephanie Phillips writing. Uh, this is there, there is humor here. Uh, there is there. The stakes are in play. Uh, not only that, we get Harvey's Harley's sidekick. Kevin has his own sort of, uh, has his own sort of, uh, interaction with Lockwood, one of the corrupt Arkham guards guards. He ends up saving, uh, Lockwood from, from the tower that's taken place at Arkham Tower that's on fire and he saves Lockwood's life even though he he has no reason to and then Lockwood doesn't return the favor when he gets in trouble and then uh, a potential love interest for Kevin comes along this Sam she rescues Kevin so Kevin gets his moment in the sun here which is the, the character that's been that that Stephanie Phillips introduced and he's been building for a while Meanwhile, we got Keepsake. This issue is called Keepsake Rising. Keepsake has created this new gang of villains called the Caucus of Corruption, and they've got to defeat them. This issue ends up with, with Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn ultimately meeting up with the Gardener and Catwoman, where they end up getting into the van and going off to do what they need to do to ha- to get Ivy to merge with her with Queen Ivy to merge with her other self and ultimately defeat the forces of the magistrate uh, underneath the, underneath the the city of Gotham. And uh, if I have one criticism here and this, this almost isn't a criticism of Stephanie Phillips. It's the continuity here is a little wonky. I'm not sure if it quite fits neatly into future state, the way this is all sort of set up. Uh, But I'm, yeah, I'm 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 gonna cut her some slack on that because Future State was 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 a massive event and and I like the reference to Steve McQueen's movie The Bullet here. There's a car chase in this issue. <laughs> the car even reminded me of the movie. I'm a Steve McQueen fan, so it was kind of it's kind of cool. And and uh, yeah, I I enjoyed this and I think that for I, again, if you've been with this from the beginning, I see no reason why people won't continue with this keepsake. Is is kind of a joke of a villain, uh, but I, I like the way this ended. Given given Harley some gravitas, given Harley and at the end here, Harley and Ivy have their moment, and yeah, what what you know that's what you're expecting. What more can you ask for? And it's a long time coming. It's nine issues in, but it's it was you know there's nothing more terrifying than falling in love is what the final page says and uh ivy tells harley that we will do it together so it was a it's it's about time it's nice to see it finally happen 
And I'm kind of glad Fear State's over because now maybe Stephanie uh, Phillips or can maybe go off in a, her own different direction and not be tied down by that event. Yeah, I'm real curious to see what happens there. We know from the start, Stephanie Phillips came on the show. She told us that you know fans of of the Harley Ivy relationship would be happy when she finally got to it. Um, yeah. But obviously, yeah, she she couldn't get to it too soon, and it had everything to do with Fear State need to pl needing to play out first. But I, I mentioned earlier about how Stephanie. So I, I keep I keep saying, well, Harley's not really my character, not really, you know. I, this is going to be the last issue of Harley. I read, yet I hear I come back and I read, I read the next issue. I read the next issue. And it has everything to do with Stephanie Phillips. She's, and I've talked about this before. She, she's much more, she writes Harley much more in the way that I like Harley to be written, where she's not quite so zany and nonsensical. Uh, she still has that, you know, that aspect of her, but it's much more about her intelligence and about her feelings. And, and, you know, she feels sort of relevant to me you know i can relate to her i can relate to the stephanie phillips version of harley more so than any version i've ever read before in the regular dcu you know there's been some other stuff the sean murphy bunting uh or not sean gordon murphy <laughs> sean murphy bunting is a, a football player for tampa bay buccaneers <laughs> which is my favorite team but yeah. no sean gordon murphy sorry um and uh you know they, they had his story that katana collins wrote uh, the Harley story where she was much less zany. And then obviously we had the incredible story that uh, Cammy Garcia wrote the Joker and Harley black label book that also had a much more serious Harley as a, a criminal profiler or whatnot. So mm. to me, that that's the Harley that speaks more to me, uh, obviously in the main DC, she's a little more zany, still a little bit more played for humor, but I don't know, maybe Stephanie Phillips and I just have the same sense of humor um, because I, I, I chuckled out loud when that bullet uh, Mustang showed up, you know, 1968 Mustang like Steve McQueen. Yes. Greatest single uh, greatest car chase in cinematic history. Yeah. Like it was fantastic. And then later when the car gets flipped, ah, uh, oh, that was heartbreaking <laughs> to see that. That was like the most devastating part of the issue. <laughs> so yeah, I just, the voice that Stephanie Phillips gives Harley is, is just wonderful. It, it's working for me. I'm, I'm, becoming a fan of her Harley and I'm planning on, I'm not going to sit here and say, no, I'm probably not going to read the next issue. No, I'm reading the next issue of Harley. Stephanie Phillips is turning me into a Harley fan. Um, and as far as the relationship between the two, I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, I wouldn't say that I'm a Harley and Ivy shipper, um, but they work together and it, it felt, it felt impactful and it felt emotional. And I have to think that, People who are a fan of that relationship must be pretty happy with it the way it turned out because it felt romantic. Um, the art by uh, Riley Rossmo, again, I'm, I'm typically not a, a fan of his, but I think he, much like this is a less zany version of Harley that Stephanie Phillips has given us, I feel like this is a, this is a less frenetic and exaggerated version of Riley Rossmo's art. Uh, things aren't, you know, like the chins aren't quite as big and the, the anatomy isn't quite as... Um, exaggerated or stylized as it normally is. So the art's working for me. Um, but at one point they even have to put arrows in to how to read the panels. That that's never a good sign that, that in my mind, that that's like, eh, that's not the best choice for a page layout if people, if you have to put arrows uh, in my mind. So, um, but again, that that's just a personal choice for me. Uh, but I am starting to enjoy his art more and more. Uh, Cause I think he is sort of finding his footing. Like what, how far do I push it into the stylized area of art? 
and still have it work with the story that Stephanie wants to tell. So yeah, th this, and again, like great job by this whole entire creative team to make it still tie into fear state, but take ownership over the story. Uh, and, and especially true in, in the beginning kind of monologue that, um, that Ivy gives us about her, what her, it means to be scared. You know, what, what are her fears? And then, you know, it plays out toward the end of the issue. And she talks about, you know, what's scary falling, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of heights or I don't have claustrophobia. I'm not afraid of, uh, spiders, but you know, what, what is scary is falling in love. And again, that's a version of Harley that I can relate to. So yeah, fantastic job by the, by the whole creative team on that one. Uh, okay. Up next, last book we're going to talk about is Robin number eight. We finally have Robin versus Hawk for the last time, we're told. Joshua Williamson, the writer, Gleb Melnikov, and Max Dunbar on art, Hi-Fi on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. First of all, I'll talk about the art. I didn't even realize that there were two artists on this, so that's how well these um, these artists did on, on uh, kind of meshing their styles together. It works really, really well. Uh, as far as the story itself, we, we sort of learn what, uh, Damien's grandmother has been after all along. We've always heard, you know, Raza Gol, uh, you know, the, the demon, whatnot, son of the demon. Uh, turns out there's a demon that lives in these Lazarus pits. Maybe that's why Lazarus and Lazarus resin and Lazarus pills or whatever are playing such a big part. Maybe we're building up to some big sort of Lazarus demon event coming later next year. Who knows? Uh, as Rocky said, Williamson is definitely sort of the architect of the DC universe right now between infinite frontier and, and what's going on with all this Lazarus stuff. So uh, still an action packed issue, although we got plenty of story and explanation. Um, and we see Connor Hawk actually defeat Damien and break his neck, kill him. Damien on Lazarus Island, of course, is resurrected, but then this demon pops up out of the pit and sticks his hand right through uh, Connor's chest and kills him. So maybe not so great. Uh, that Connor won the fight because, you know, he's even talking when the demon finally shows up. He's like, hey, this is why the Shadow League brought me here in the first place because I'm the best fighter and only I can stop the demon. And then, boom, he's killed. Kind of like that scene out of Indiana Jones, right, where the guy shows up with the knife and or sword, what machete, whatever you want to call it. He's flipping it around and Indiana Jones just pulls out his gun and shoots him, you know, very <laughs> anticlimactic. Uh, and then, you know, supposedly we're going to find out that Damien's probably going to be the one to save the day. So it feels a little tropey, like maybe Connor Hawk only lost because he was attacked from behind and surprised. Uh, otherwise he could have defeated this demon. Um, but I, you know, I talked about this before about, yeah, I know Connor's a really formidable fighter, but it never, as much as I'm not a fan of Damien as a character, it never really sat right with me when they said that Connor was a better fighter than Damien and having Connor defeat Damien in this issue doesn't necessarily ring true to me either. Um, bear in mind, he's injured though. Damien stated that's specifically that, that's he was true. injured and that's why he almost, yeah. he didn't care that he died. Cause yeah, he still had another life left. So he came back fully healed. That was part of fully Damien's healed, plan. Yeah. That's, that's the impression I had. Yeah. Yeah. You, and you very well might be right. Cause I know he, you know, he does mention that I know, but now I have the advantage of being fully healed, blah, blah, blah. So I guess we'll see how it all plays out. Um, but at least this series has finally gotten to the place that we, that you and I were always hoping that it was, which is some really cool fights, great art and action. It's kind of bogged down there for uh, three or four issues. So glad to see it's back where uh, I kind of always expected it to be. And yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty good issue. I guess we'll see how it all plays out with Damien fighting this demon from the Lazarus pits next issue. 
Yeah, I, I I enjoyed this. Uh, one of the one of the criticisms I had, I think it was, I forget what, even what issue it was. Was it issue four or five? I, I actually had some criticism of the uh, choreography and the art by Gleb Melnikov. I thought maybe some of the fight sequences were we were given short thrift that we weren't given a lot of detail. This issue more than makes up for that. This issue, there are multiple fight scenes, a long sequence between the battle between Robin, uh, Damien, and Hawk. It's fantastic. Very well done. Very well done. It made up for the criticisms I had in past issues on on some of these fight scenes getting short thrift. That's this was a very good issue if if you're into like the, the whole fighting sequences and everything and and you know uh, we've all played that you know who's a better fighter you know Lady Shiva or Batman or Cassandra Kane or Hawk or Damien or Black Canary and uh, Barbara Gordon and you get in get in all these pissing matches and of course the answer is I think it was uh, Kurt Busiek who said that the, the answer is really simple it depends on who's writing that's who the better yeah. fighter is I mean and. And what I what I like about what what Joshua Williamson does here is that he actually respects all the players here. So if you're somebody that think Hawk is the greatest fighter, well, Hawk did defeat Damien. If you think Damien's a better fighter, well, you have the excuse that Damien was injured. And and if you like Flatline, if you th- if you if you're Flatline, well, Flatline. I mean, the way she lost to Damien last issue was you know a little bit of bad luck, and you know so there's. Any one of these fighters could defeat any one of these other fighters on any given day, given environment and circumstance. That's how I always look at the top 10. Anybody in the top 10 or 20 can defeat anyone else in the top 10 or 20. To me, it's like football. It's like on any given Sunday, right? I mean, anybody, you know, a top five. Yeah, you know, don't, fi- just don't tell that to Batman fans. Yeah. They'll <laughs> flip out on you. Well, if yeah. Batman, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, but uh, well, I, I would, I'd happily argue with that uh, Batman fan because, uh, but, but Batman is good. He's the best overall fighter. But in any event, I, I like the way that that this played out. I also like the fact that uh, you know this 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 mother character. She the whole goal here was to unite the League of Lazarus and the League of Shadows to have them join forces and under the auspices of this demon that would rise. And embody wh- whichever whoever person wins this tournament, this demon is going to possess the ultimate fighter. And so, with Hawk winning, this demon would possess Hawk. Of course, uh, that didn't happen. It looks like Hawk is maybe taken out. Hawk is not really dead, of course, because Hawk has his. I believe he's got one or two lives left. Even I'm not really sure. But um, Damien now is that he ends. He ends up being resurrected at the end. He's in full power. And this is this is a lot of fun. This is I when I um uh, I, I've commented before that right now I think Robin embodies in many ways where the DC universe, the best parts of the DC universe right now, arguably, and that's a high compliment to Joshua Williamson. And I, I don't mean to overplay that compliment because I have my criticisms of Williamson, but this comic is fun. It's adventurous. It it takes all the it. it it takes certain liberties, but the best kind of liberties. It respects the reader, and it has lo- it has hints at romance of, of good character interaction, action packed, and it's got good fan service. And I don't know what the sales are, but I suspect the sales are probably higher than a lot of the other titles too. This to me, this Robin, Car- this new group of of teenage fighters between Hawk and and Flatline and and Respawn and and all these characters Black Swan and all the ones and Hawk that that take place here and Ravager to me this is an, an this is what Teen Titans ought to be this is another version of Titans United to me but this is what Teen Titans Academy could be 
but I want these guys to form a team. I love this. I would love a team book with these characters on it. I think it would be kick ass. I just, I really think that they've struck potential gold here with this, uh, not so much even with the idea, but these new characters. Uh, so, you know, it's not just James Tynion that introduced a bunch of new characters. Williamson now has added all these and a great effect. I think that there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of potential for all these crazy characters. Even Respawn. I find myself I was actually say, for Respawn. Respawn. Good God. I mean, he's the most cliche, com- pathetic character. And yet there's something oddly enticing about him. I don't know. Maybe that's me getting desperate for good characters in the DC universe. But um, I'm enjoying the DC universe overall, as you know. And th- this, I mean, this is a title that continues to just put a smile on my face. Despite the fact that when it started off, I ha- I was cynical about it. Yeah, I, I sort of agree. I could see it continuing. Uh, and we do know there's a mystery about who Respawn is. It may turn out to, as I said, <laughs> yeah. we talked about the last issue, maybe it's not somebody that, that's new and derivative after all. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, as far as other titles coming out this week from DC, there we covered everything. Uh, there are a couple of collections. Batman by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo has the Volume 2 hardcover coming out if uh if that's the way you like to collect the uh, volume two omnibus uh and then the other collection that's out this week is the the uh, first volume of robbie thompson's suicide squad uh give peace a chance which talk about being surprised uh i i'm surprised you know it felt so much like um pandering when we found out suicide squad new version was going to be led by peacemaker everything to do with peacemaker being the suicide squad movie and him having his own hbo max uh series coming but man robbie thompson's made it work so suicide squads i'm really really enjoying it so uh if you're so inclined you haven't checked it out you can pick up that uh that trade that's at comic shops this week as well uh so as we're winding up here just a reminder everybody if you're checking us out just on the audio only be sure you go over to the youtube channel do a search for comic boom comic space boom exclamation point that's rocky's channel you can see our smiling faces and uh, check out the art as we're talking about the books every tuesday dc spotlight be sure you subscribe to the channel and ring that notification bell as well so you know when rocky puts out new content and go ahead and like this video uh, as well. Uh, conversely, if you are checking us out on the YouTube channel and you've never subscribed to the comic source, we really would appreciate that. Just head over to your favorite podcast platform or uh, podcast app on your smart device, do a search for the comic source and hit subscribe. Uh, for everybody in the United States, have a happy Thanksgiving and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about some more DC books. Uh, anything else to add, Rocky? Uh, just my pick of the week, I would I would give it with uh, to Robin 8 by Sliver beating out DCV Vampires issue 2. But Robin number 8 was was a lot of fun. Yeah, I got to give my nod to uh, Superman 78 number 4 because uh, Christopher Reeve, as he said in his own words, through the pen of Robert Venditti, harm's way is what I do. So right. fantastic. Uh, anyway, everybody, thanks again for watching or listening, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. 
Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.